0: kind of you to think of me when I was out of sorts. It really meant a lot to be in someone else's thoughts, someone else's mind, someone else's kind. As you The you showed has made a difference in my life. I won't forget how unafraid.
1: History, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hello, 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 hi, 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 and welcome to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul, all of the time. And remember, this is widescreen podcasting. This is, wild. This is wild. wild Screen screen Podcasting. I'm of course your host Sam Wiles, thank you all for tuning in, and I hope you're all well, safe and sound. Well, here we are once again folks, we are having another one of these episodes that I'm oh so happy to take part in and do the research for and put out for you, because I get to speak to another author. It's something that I either do a whole lot on this show, or it seems to have like whole year gaps of intermittence in between, but... Yep, we are back on the literary bandwagon once again. And today, we are going to be looking at Love and Let Die by John Higgs. Or, should I say, Love and Let Die, Bond, The Beatles, and The British Psyche. Now, if that's a title that doesn't get you going, it doesn't inflare your senses and send your mind reeling, then I don't know what title will. This is an absolutely awesome book, folks. Right off the top of the show, I'm going to say that. This is another one, like another book that's actually gotten me to read it past the interview with the author. That is always such a litmus test for me, you know, to see if a book really is good. And I am a few dozen chapters past the obligatory amount that I read before I do an interview. Yes, I have actually continued to read this book and I've learned so much about Bond in this book. Of course, a lot of the Beatles stuff I'm already quite familiar with but oh my god I've learned so much about James Bond in this book and the number of connections between Bond and the Beatles and how many times those two stories intersect is so astounding and it totally makes sense that a book like this exists if any of you out there have any doubts as to what this book could contain and you know why it should exist as a concept just know that Love Me Do and Doctor No were released on the same day and kind of defined the 60s. Yes, this is a book about the 60s and onwards. It's about British culture, it's about British history, the British psyche. It's about masculinity, it's about social trends, sexuality. It covers it all so brilliantly and so deftly and there's so much research and he writes it well. He writes it really well and it's a speedy read. It's quite leisurely. It's not too intense and I've really been enjoying it. And so, right here, at the top of the show, I can only give it my full recommendation. Please go out and buy your own copy of Love and Let Die, Bomb The Beatles, and The British Psyche. I'm holding my copy right here, even though I'm not on camera. But yeah, go check this out, because I've really been enjoying it. It's really fun, it's really learned, and best of all, it's a Beatles book with an actual original topic and theme, which is oh, just so fantastic that that can still exist and can still happen, and we're still getting this sort of media. But you know what, before we get into the book itself and my interview with the author who I loved having on the show we had a great time together. We do need to quickly settle the matter of the housekeeping, housekeeping. and starting off with the news. What do we have for today? Well, first of all, we've got something very exciting indeed. In a recent interview with paulmccartney.com, Mac has come right out and said that there is indeed some new music on the horizon in this year of 2023. You know what, I'll just read the quote. PM.com says, That's a great highlight of 2022, talking about Glastonbury. It was ours too. What are you looking forward to in 2023? Paul says, Well, I'm going on holiday. I'm definitely looking forward to that. And I'm doing some more recording. I've been recording with a couple of people, so I've been looking forward to doing that even more. I've started working with this producer called Andrew Watt, and he's very interesting. We've had some fun. Beyond that, I don't have anything massively planned at the moment. So... Who knows what this means, right? Yes, it could mean a new album, but we should also temper our expectations and remember that this could range from something big, like an album or his stage musical that he's been working on for a while, or the score for his Netflix animated movie, to something small like a couple of collabs or simply stocking up on songs for a future project. Hey, anything at all. I'll take any new Paul McCartney recordings, especially with the way that they get leaked these days. At at best, we get an album. At worst, we get some cold cuts, like with Phil. um. Also, just touching on the idea of him working with Andrew Watts, or Andrew Watt, that's pretty cool. Watt is best known for his work with Justin Bieber, Miley Cyrus, and Post Malone, but he's also recently worked with other legacy artists, like Elton John, Steve Wonder... Ozzy Osbourne, Eddie Vedder and Iggy Pop, which means that we may very well end up with a possible Greg Kirsten, Ryan Tedder situation in the near future, where the kids are going to update Paul's sound for him. For some, that may be a bad sign, but for me, it's an incredibly good one. Following on, and we have another music video HD restoration. Yes, Paul has been working his way through his back catalogue of videography and updating them for a while now most recently with wonderful christmas time at the end of last year however on this occasion it's for hope of deliverance now i've not actually covered this video yet with ed chen in that little side series yet but i did sneak ahead and check it out and let me just say i have a lot to say about it and i can't wait to cover it with him in the future anyway the important thing is is that There is a video now in HD, so both you and I can enjoy it in the best resolution possible. Go and check it out. Links will be in the description down below. Moving forward, and what do we have? Oh, look, another book release. Oh, just another book release. Oh, no, wait, no. This is not just any book release. This is set to be possibly one of the biggest, most reviewed, most highly publicised releases of the year. It's a book by Maka himself, which at first made me very joyous, as I'm sure you are right now at that news, but then you think, oh yes, this is going to be very heavy on the wallet indeed, isn't it? What is it, Sam? Let us know. Well, this is a new book by Paul McCartney, and it is called 1964 Eyes of the Story. Here's what we know so far, and I quote... In 2022, an extraordinary trove of nearly a 1,000 photographs taken by Paul McCartney on a 35mm camera was rediscovered in his archive. They intimately record the months towards the end of 1963 and the beginning of 1964, when Beatlemania erupted in the UK, and after the band's first visit to the UK, they became the most famous people on the planet. The photographs are McCartney's personal record of this explosive time, when he was, as he puts it, in the eyes of the storm 1964 eyes of the storm presents 275 of mccartney's photographs from the six cities of these intense legendary months liverpool london paris new york washington dc and miami and many never before seen portraits of john george and ringo in his forward and introductions to these city portfolios mccartney remembers what else can you call pandemonium and conveys his impressions of Britain and America in 1964, the moment when the culture changed and the 60s really began. Well, folks, just as predicted, the enormous success of Paul McCartney, the lyrics, has inevitably inspired Paul to go at it again for another, what might be a yearly-by-yearly, yearly tradition now, prestige book release with this one looking to set you back around £60, about $100. Though, unlike Paul McCartney's The Lyrics, which was focused on words and supplemented with great pictures, this seems to have taken the opposite route and is a book that is focusing on the pictures that will hopefully be supplemented by great words. 1964 In the Eyes of the Storm will be released on the 13th of June 2023 and I'll be working my ass off to make sure that I get a free press copy by that time. Yeah, of course I will. Although, if you don't manage to get a copy for yourself, the photos inside of it will be displayed at the National Portrait Gallery in London from the 28th of June to the 1st of October, so be sure to check that out if you can. So who's excited about this? I know I am. I'm definitely going to be grabbing a copy even if I don't get that lucrative press one. Oh well. But yeah, folks, the prospect of new Beatle content, uh, new Beatle photos, you know, they've only been discovered in the last three years or so, they're going to be fresh for public eyes now. How can that not be exciting? Uh, This this is going to be the big Beatle release of the year in many ways, and I'm sure McCartney's going going to be going for that prestigious uh, Waterstones Book of the Year award again. You know, good luck to him in that. a very exciting release. God, there's so many good books, so many good uh, McCartney and Beetle books coming out this year. We, we really are spoiled. What have we got next? Oh yes, uh, we come to the rather sad portion of the show now, folks. No, no, don't worry, this isn't Driving Rain Part One or anything like that. But this is an obituary segment, a McCartney-related obituary segment. Don't worry, it's not Paul himself. And this isn't going to be an official segment, and I don't want to make it a regular one, but things do seem to have a trend towards this uh, in recent years. But yeah, Paul has made several tributes on his Twitter page after losing quite a few people in the last few weeks and months. First of all was the death of Charles Gracie. Gracie was an old rock and roll icon from Paul's youth with such hits as the American number one, Butterfly, or the UK number six hit, Fabulous, which Paul, of course, covered on the Run Devil Run album. Paul said, sad to hear of the death of Charles Gracie, an early rock and roll pioneer who influenced our formative years. Love to his family. Thanks, Charlie. You were fabulous. Love, Paul. Kiss. Then we had the death of iconic red-headed fashion designer, Vivian Westwood. I never even knew Paul and her were close, but, Even if he didn't know it before, like, Stella got into, you know, fashion and being a big fashion icon, he certainly would have after that point, so it does, it does make sense. Still, he was clearly moved enough to write, "'Goodbye, Vivian Westwood, a ballsy lady who rocked the fashion world and stood defiantly for what was right. Love, Paul. Kiss.'" Following on, and we have the passing of Barbara Walters. She was, of course, the famous American broadcaster and TV personality, And uh, she actually recently came up on Reddit for all of her inappropriate questions uh, that she asked uh, celebrities. Uh, So I don't know how really beloved she is in the wider world and in America specifically. But anyway, she is connected to Paul, not through a past interview, but because she was the older cousin of his wife, Nancy Chaval. So it made sense for him to pay tribute. He wrote... Nancy and I are saddened by the news of her dear cousin Barbara Walters' passing. The two of them enjoyed a deep and loving relationship over many years, and I was proud to share some of those special moments. Next, in a never-ending stream of fatalities, we had the death of Jeff Beck. Beck, as I'm sure many of you know, is a very esteemed and influential guitarist who came up around the same time as Paul. Though, the fact that Paul, along with Jimmy Page and comedian Vic Reeves, did a cover of I've Got a Lovely Bunch of Coconuts at Jeff Beck's Wedding shows that they must have been pretty close indeed. Oh, what a show that must have been. But yeah, Paul said, I was saddened to hear that Jeff Beck had died. Jeff Beck was a lovely man with a wicked sense of humour who played some of the best guitar music to ever come out of Britain. But that's not where the story ends with Jeff in this new segment, folks. As it turns out, and this likely had been brought to light because of his death, is that Beck and McCartney did actually make some music together and it was part of a 1994 campaign against deforestation and the song title is literally Why Are They Cutting Down the Rainforest? And this has never been uh, known about before. It isn't in any books or anything like that. I hope Luca Perazzi has time to add this to his book before he releases it. But yeah, the audio has been released and it's been made public and it is very interesting indeed and let's just Let's just play it right now.
2: Hello, this is Jeff Beck. Why are they cutting down the rainforest? Grazing. What worries me is what else we are killing, besides the cows. Nearly a quarter of all medications and pharmaceuticals that we use today are derived from tropical plants. 70% 70% of the plants identified as having anti-cancer agents come from rainforests and yet because we want more and more grazing land for cattle, we are ripping up the rainforests, uncaring or oblivious to the fact that these forests may and possibly do contain plants that could provide a cure for leukemia or heart disease, maybe even a cure for AIDS, who knows. But it doesn't make much sense to me to risk losing the possible discovery of a miracle cure just for a dollar fifty hamburger. Thanks for listening. So yeah,
1: as you heard there, Paul doesn't actually sing on it, but it is described as those two making music together. So I'm sure Paul is playing one, if not several instruments on that track. Uh, it, as a spoken word piece, was quite interesting. Uh, it's probably not what most people would want from a Jeff Beck and Paul McCartney collab, but, you know, as far as curios go, it's it's definitely up there. That was that was very cool indeed. Although, sadly, that is not the end of the obituaries, We you have to go back for a brief moment, as we also had the death of Burt Bacharach. To me, the name Bert Bacharach isn't one that I really know. I don't really know any of his music, but I've always known that he was one of those big names quote-unquote in music and he released a ton of music in his lifetime particularly in the 60s and it is no wonder that McCartney was fond of him Paul wrote on his twitter dear Bert Bacharach has passed away his songs were an inspiration to people like me I met him on a couple of occasions and he was very kind and a talented man who will be missed by all his songs were distinctive and different from many others in the 60s and 70s When we met not too long ago, he reminded me that he'd been the musical director for Marlene Dietrich when the Beatles shared the bill with her at the London Palladium. He was a lovely man. Nancy and I send lots of love to his family. Paul. Now, lastly, lastly, I'm going to get to a name that, oddly enough, was not posted on Paul's Twitter. And that is the recent loss of David Crosby. Also, that was another big rock and roll loss we've had recently. Now... If Paul's Twitter is solely an algorithm, or an intern, then I imagine it it would have posted a soulless tribute to David Crosby. So if it is indeed somewhat run by Paul himself, maybe he calls someone to do it for him, then I can only conclude that Paul really didn't know David Crosby very well. Um, I'd hate to think that they didn't like each other, but I've never heard anything like that, a- uh, anyone email in and let me know otherwise. Are there any links between the Beatles or McCartney and Crosby or Crosby, Stills Nash & Young, something like that. I don't know. But yeah, I did think it was odd on the day that Paul didn't post something, but I'm, I'm, I'm likely overthinking about it. So let's move right on to the next kind of major topic that has been out in the last few days. There is a new Paul McCartney documentary coming out, folks. That is always an exciting prospect as well. New McCartney-specific content. You know, Paul's getting on the get back bandwagon. If the Beatles have had a big successful doc, I should have a big successful doc as well, and I couldn't agree more. It is called Man on the Run, and it is set to be directed by filmmaker Morgan Neville, and will draw on the unprecedented access to a never-before-seen archive of Paul and Linda's home videos and photos, as well as new interviews. And from what the press release has put out, it is mostly going to focus on Wings and Paul's solo career, which, Okay, if that's true, then this is going to be one of the most exciting McCartney cinematic releases ever. Like a big prestige McCartney documentary that doesn't just focus on the Beatles. Like, imagine if both halves of um, George Harrison living in the material world were all about George's solo career. We went, like, album by album in a little more detail, which which you could do with George uh, George's discography, you know. Um, and I don't think we're gonna get an album by album one with Man on the Run which is also the name of a McCartney book, but that's probably another topic. Um, you know, a li- just a little more detail on Wings and their breakup and, you know, th- th- their tours and their albums and their songs and their hits. That could be fun, you know, for maybe like the first third of the movie, if it's going to go like that, maybe the first half, maybe a like half is going to be Wings. Uh, but, you know, a documentary that even just glosses over all of Paul's solo career from start to finish, but we get a mention of everything and, you know, the life that's a big. That's a big task, actually. Uh, I can't wait to see if he if he pulls it off. I don't know how far forward it's going to go. Is it going to go all the way to McCartney three and Rockdown? Who knows? Uh, you know, this is going to be something that we're all going to be keeping our eye on. I imagine we're all going to be looking for updates and new articles and reviews. That kind of thing. Uh, I mean, how can you not when the press release puts out things like. Man on the Run will serve as the definitive document of Paul's emergence from the dissolution of the world's biggest band and his triumphant creation of a second decade of musical milestones, a brilliant and prolific stretch. Okay, that makes it just sound like it's only going to be Wings. So maybe when they say Solo, they mean that, 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 you know, that they're going to cover McCartney 1, Ram, and maybe like McCartney 2, maybe Tug of War... Uh, So that's probably what we should expect. I don't think we're going to be getting all the way up to McCarty 3, sadly. But yeah, this is awesome. This is fucking awesome. I'm really excited about this one. The pedigree is amazing. I really want to get this Morgan Neville uh, Neville guy on the show. I really feel like he would be doing interview rounds soon, so i really better get on that. But yeah, he's done so many docs, or at least his company has. Uh, You know, they've done docs on Keith Richards, Johnny Cash, uh, even one on Taylor Swift, because everyone who I want on this show seems to have worked with Taylor Swift in some way when it comes to film stuff, you know. But yeah, you know, these are big artists. You know, he's done popular artists, he's done uh, legacy ones, and you know, many other documentaries of of many types. And so, who better to tackle the topic of McCartney than someone who is a top tier documentary filmmaker? So, how could you not be excited about this? And finally, folks, to round out this new segment, we have a style cover of Temporary Secretary. Yes, this is by the YouTube channel The Music B&B, and it is a cover of Temporary Secretary as interpreted by The Music B&B if Enter Shikari wrote it. Now, Enter Shikari are a rock band that were kind of big when I was a teenager, they are still going, they incorporate a lot of other elements into their music like metal and hip-hop and stuff, they're quite eclectic, they're really not my thing, and I thought that this actually was a cover by them until I saw the title, If Enter Shikari Wrote a Temporary Secretary, but still I found it to be quite interesting, worthy of mentioning at least, and I'll be playing it in full at the end of this episode. Right, that is all of the news out of the way. Let's do the plugs. Let's do it quickly, folks, because we don't have any emails this week. But if you do want to get in contact with the show, drop us an email about anything Paul McCartney related at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Follow us on our Twitter for daily updates, which is at McCartneyPod. You can also say hello there as well. For bonus Paul or anything written content, check out paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. Check us out on the socials, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by Toby Paul, and I think all Paul McCartney Podcast. Of course, YouTube is the place where you can check out all episodes of our sister series, Macca In Your Attic. You really should know what that is by now. If you want to help out the show right away, please leave us some form of review, whether it's some stars, a like, a thumbs up, a tick, a comment, a share, whatever it is, it is always appreciated. And finally, folks, if you want to help out the show more directly, more consistently, then please check out our Patreon page where you get early access to loads of Paul or Nothing content and access to loads of hidden and unlockable Paul or Nothing content. There's loads of stuff there. There's even a unique side series that I do on there as well. I'm not doing the full explanation today, folks, because you've heard it all before and I'll probably be doing it again next week anyway. So let's just dive right into my conversation with John Higgs about his book, Love and Let Die, The Beatles, Bond and The British Psyche. One, two, three, go me. And now, everyone, it is time for me to bring on today's esteemed guest. The man I'm speaking with today, folks, has been writing about a perfect storm of topics to get him to this particular moment and this particular release. He's written about British culture, British history, British historical and artistic figures, as well as text detailing the last and current centuries. So when I heard that his new book was going to be called Love and Let Die, Bond, The Beatles and the British Psyche... I knew that he was going to be more than qualified to tackle such a gargantuan topic. Everyone, please welcome to Paul or Nothing, Mr. John Higgs. Hello, John. How are we doing today? Oh, I'm doing very well, Sam. It's really nice talking to you. Hello there. Yes, I'm so excited to have you on here today because there is so much to cover. There is, genuinely, <laughs> normally, I, I mean, I really try and pass my questions down to two good A4 pages, but I'm bordering five or five or six here, so I'm really going to raffle off here. Oh, I'm not, God. I'm not going to. Do, we've done all the pleasant exchanges, folks, off camera. I knew I'd have to do that to keep the episode streamlined. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, this is Bond and the Beatles and the British psyche. Let's just quickly talk about the first two broadly, just so we can get a baseline for who you are and, you know, where your headset was coming into this book. Please tell me about your first memories of the Beatles. Oh, I, you know,
3: I, it's, they, they've always been there. They're always part of your life, so it's very hard to say when you've first discovered them. But I do have strong memories of the film Birth of the Beatles, probably in about 1979, 1918, being on the TV and watching that as a young kid. Okay. And just the fact that it it was deemed significant enough that this band in their early days had changed their drummer, that was enough... (laughs) To make a film about, sort of mark them out as this. This is something. This is an important band. You know, mm-hmm. it just seems so, so, such a weird thing
1: to exist. So yeah, I think that's my first, my first memory of Birth me. of the Beatles is a nineteen seventy nine American biographical film produced by Dick Clark Productions. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. yeah, very, very. very I interesting mean, we a TV movie. Oh. You know, it's
3: at primary school bed all sung. You know. Yellow Submarine and yep. Yesterday, probably. I've got those, exactly. Things yes. like those. And it slightly ruined them for you for a while, you know, in that it was a school thing. And it, it took, took a, a while to sort of come around and rediscover the whole thing and how they all fitted together and what the Beatles actually were. But they were always there, basically.
1: What was the the climate when you were a young, a young lad grown up with the Beatles? Were we in one of those phases where they were cool or one of those phases where they were anything but
3: anything but particularly McCartney it was the it was the that run from uh <laughs> Mull of Kintyre I remember that because it didn't go away you know there was all there was all this punk stuff happening but it stayed at number one for <laughs> so long and at first you go oh look there's bagpipes that's unusual bagpipes on this one and then a, a week later and a week later and a month later and a month later it was still oh there's the bagpipes again so that was the sort of And I can remember, i um, uh, give my regards to Broad Street coming out and that just, you know, the the critical hammering that sort of got. So it was, for Paul McCartney, it was a very um, harsh time. And I also remember when John Lennon died Mm. and uh, all these songs went to number one, like Imagine went to number one. Mm -hmm. And I remember Woman going to number one and I thought that, oh, that's an old song. Right, because mm. it sounds like an old song. It doesn't mm. sound like you know the modern day music. It sounds like an old song that must be from the back. I, so, you know, when I realised later that no, that, that was that was his posthumous new single. It was a bit of a <laughs> it was a bit of a shock, but, but it was you know, it was really the Britpop era there, yeah, it, it, and the anthology that all started to to click into place. I think,
1: for me. yeah. Thankfully, the nineties came back around, and all the important British bands were all Beatles influenced. So that was yeah. the best thing that could ever have happened to them digression number one mm. so lennon dies imagine goes to number one michael jackson's yeah. death man in the mirror was the number one here in the uk if you remember oh okay what's gonna be the song that goes to number one i'm not ever gonna say it but you know, you know yeah i know what, i
3: know what you're saying and
1: what, um, what what song will they play when that happens
3: <laughs> it's <sighs> Part of me was about to say uh, "live and let die," but that would probably be a bit tasty. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be a little bit, <laughs> a little bit wrong yeah. on some on some level. <laughs> um, it's got to be "let it be," hasn't
1: it? Let it be. Yeah, it's it, it's unfortunately not going to be a, a solo McCartney track, is it? It's going to be a Beatles song most, of the um, most, most likely. Probably, maybe I'm it. amazed. Maybe I mean I'd make a case for silly love songs. Ooh, because that's his life. That's a yeah, because that
3: sort of that sort of sums him up, you know, so so well. But Matt, I, I want a
1: B-side from Press to Play, straight to number one. <laughs> tough on a tight rope, something like that. Hang glide. Yeah.
3: yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we'll see. We'll see what the British streaming population have got to <laughs> say about that. It'll be it'll be like when Bowie died, and it mm. was just. The amount of amazing stuff was just what was so shocking and so surprising. Obviously, we just had Blackstar, like the week, like the Friday before. And everyone was, I was listening to Blackstar and, and, uh, yeah, and then it was just, yeah, it's the quantity. And I think that is the most overwhelming thing with McCartney. He sort of slightly hid it when, you know, he could have done a Glastonbury set where it's like, here's this one you all know, and this one you all know, and this one you all know. his
1: Glastonbury set was such a wonderful fuck you to normal people. <laughs> it was, <wasn't> it? <laughs> <laughs> Letting it's go, still, Juniors, Farms, yeah, go, yeah, what just, are these? Oh, yeah.
3: yeah, yeah, you know the ones you like from Egypt station? Well, here you go. It's Well, so and, uh,
1: I had a guy who was telling me that, um, this is actually a lost episode of the show. It, uh, I, I didn't click record, just make sure I am now. Yes, I am indeed recording now. Apparently, people were leaving at the back. People were leaving in droves, <laughs> and it wasn't until he went, you know, well, she was just seven, yeah, and then and then everyone starts, you know, flocking on back. But I was just sat at home, absolutely, you know, clutching my belly with laughter. It was it was a wonderful set. It was because it was such a Paul McCartney thing to do
3: yeah it was totally under i mean it was he turned 80 right he mm-hmm. was on the the saturday night headline of the pyramid stage at glastonbury there's no more prestigious gig there's no bigger audience it was being streamed i think it was paused, but it was being streamed to the country and yeah. everyone in the world would see it and he could have just sort of said well look this is the moment to sort of summarize my entire life's work and and you know and say, I did that. You know, look at my work, G mighty in despair, that sort of thing. But just wanted to play Junior's Farm. And
1: well, <laughs> I'm, glad, oh, I'm glad he didn't do what he did at the Jubilee, which was, which was all of England's watching. What do we open with? It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Oh, <laughs> God's <laughs> sake. Even Beatle fans consider that like a lower mid tier song For Come on. All my loving, you know? Yeah. Come, yeah, out, yeah. come out. He'll never. There's never a, a bad McCartney gig where he starts with All My Love and it's just the yeah. well, yeah, trick the audience. Uh, some quickfire questions. Can I push you for a favourite Beatles era and album, song, all the generic? Uh, probably favourite album is the White Album.
3: Okay, strong choice. In the sense of it being more than some of its parts.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, it's something unlike any other album in, with that record. If you took any part of... If you took even the bits you didn't like out of it, it would be less. Mm. It's odd. It's very, very... No one can agree what tracks it should have on it and things it like was,
1: that. It was the Buddy Beagle's white album, shut
3: up. <laughs> <laughs> yes. They should just put that on the front.
1: Honestly, era, I, we, we would buy it if they just repackaged it with that still on the front cover. Yeah,
3: absolutely we would. Era, I want to say, say
1: that sort of that,
3: that mid-era, mm-hmm. that sort of just the head of... Sergeant Pepper, so it's not. Help, Rubber Soul, like a,
1: Revolver, yeah, exactly,
3: yeah. Help, I'm a big supporter of. I really love Help. I can, you can just sort of sense that 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 something is a something is happening. They by that point they would got you know as big as any band could possibly ever dream of being. They'd achieved everything they ever mm-hmm. wanted to do. Nineteen sixty five. Um, in, in theory, there was nothing else left for them to do but maybe try and sustain for as long as they could before the inevitable sort of drop off. And we know that that's not what happened. They just changed, and they changed. And you can start to see in that album, even in things like Yesterday, mm-hmm. that there's 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 higher peaks that they can sort of go for, and higher peaks. I mean, I love the song Help in particular because I think that was. That was, um, I, didn't, I didn't have much luck in the inheriting uh, records from older generations. Oh, At really? the uh, department. But my auntie had, um, with the Beatles and the Seven Inch of Help, and with the Beatles had this massive scratch down one side. <laughs> I, had the, I had the Seven Inch of Help and uh, in mono, like that real glorious sort of mono punch. And it's so perfectly crafted, that song. You know, it I, I doesn't really get a lot of love, but I mean, I just, I'm in, in awe of it. I mean, it's everything about It's just uh, right. It's just so right and so perfect. And the way the the backing vocals go ahead and then behind, and it's so intricate and the, and the, just the simple emotion of it. I think it's just
1: a phenomenal song hell help. And it's what? massively overlooked. All I can think of now is that your next book needs to be called Seven Inches of Help. I think that's the, <laughs> <laughs> the, the ultimate title. Of course, do not let the fact that this is a primarily Paul McCartney-based podcast affect this next question, but favourite Beatle, come on.
3: I think that's a question that should never be asked because it's the, the relationships <laughs> between the four of them that is where the magic lies. That's the alchemy. I think any if you viewed one of them as above or below the others it breaks it it's it's these it's the four perfect parts it's like i i think i describe it in the book as saying that like ringo's earth johnny's fire george's water yeah yeah, 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 Paul yeah, yeah is yeah. Paul is, uh, air uh, and together that creates you know the, the, the fifth element and having uh, a favorite beetle just seems not to understand that i don't know but it's the amount of people who've read the book and gone Paul's your favourite, isn't he? It's quite hard.
1: It's the... really quite hard. <laughs> That's so funny.
3: And I was a little bit surprised because I'd put that chapter in about giving my regards to Broad Street. You know, which <laughs> you know may not he may not have, you know come out quite so well. But um, I think it's to do with the sense of Paul being uh, reevaluated it's quite well established in sort of Beatle fandom circles now. Mm-hmm. But just you go slightly outside of that, there's still the notion that, oh, John was the great genius and like Paul was a bit wet, Was does sort of, in my generation, it sort of lingers uh, for, for people of, of my age, not so much in the younger people who just think it's bizarre, um, but for Generation X like myself, that sort, of, that sort of lingers there. So Paul, for those people, came out of the book better than i think people were expecting i think mm. i mean to be honest he he comes out of it better than anyone i think
1: well the most famous reassessment in Beatle dumb is obviously that revolver's now better than sergeant pepper we've all put yeah. a stamp of approval that is yeah. official dogma now that well that that's the gen x position <laughs> the, yeah, oh, dude. the baby the baby Mother, that, you know
3: <laughs> Those who were there, it was Sergeant Pepper. Yeah, yeah. We came up and we go, no, mate, for God's sake, it's Revolver. Jesus, just listen to Tomorrow Never Knows. Millennials, they sort of go for Abbey Road. Because
1: it's the modern album. It's the one that most mm. sounds like what they're listening to now. Yeah. Real yeah, Gs like so. me, real cool kids. <laughs> we're all about Rubber Soul. We're all about Rubber yeah. Soul. Kids, don't do heroin, don't do LSD, but you, you can smoke and drink a lot, and that's that's, uh, <laughs> that's summed up in Rubber Soul for me. You know, I don't want you smacked yeah. out on the floor, like in the late B session. Mm-hmm. So I don't want you jumping mm-hmm. off the roof, but you can giggle in the studio. I think that's what sums up Rubber Soul for me. Uh, you know?
3: This is good advice. You'd make a good parent, clearly. Yes
1: know, no. Look, I want to buy you your LSD because I don't want you buying it off some random bloke on the street. I want to I, I know where your LSD is coming, coming from. <laughs> now, you've covered history and culture in many forms across your career. And one of your earliest books was on Timothy Leary, yeah. aka the man who inspired the song Come Together. And so, look, just look me in the eye. You've definitely wanted to write a Beatles book for a while, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So this is this. I, I, I ain't no shame in it. Yeah. I wanted to write a Beatles
3: book for for a long time, but I hadn't sort of. I didn't have the way to do it. I didn't have the sort of the the, the angle I thought would give people uh, who knew the story completely sort of enough of an interesting sort of perspective to make it worth people's while. So yeah, and um, Timothy Leary really is quite a major uh, lyricist for the for the Beatles. Mm-hmm. You know, the way things like Imagine, the credits have been changed, so it's Lennon and No-No now, for, mm-hmm. for, for perfectly valid and good reasons. You know, there's quite a few songs that should be like Lennon Leary or something like that, or even yeah. All Things Much Past is is just a complete rip-off of, of, of Leary's uh, rewriting of the De Dage Inc. Um So George Harrison was taking from him as well. So there's at least three, you know, three songs from, from them four.
1: I mean, the, the most complicated one would probably be Eleanor Rigby, because that was, like, written in an SNL-style, you do a line, I'll do a line, because there was, there was, like... I think Ringo did Darning His Socks, George did hey, ah. a Look at All the Lonely People, and there was... It's not Stu Sutcliffe, but it's one of the periphery figures of a Stu Sutcliffe level in 66, or yeah. threw in a line as well. That, that, it
3: was it was John's mate, uh, Pete Shotton, wasn't it? Pete Shotton, yeah. Pete Shotton, yeah. He chucked yeah. in a line, yeah. Or, he, or didn't, didn't he suggest me bringing the two verses together in the last boss it was something like that
1: the most genius part of the song yeah Uh, (laughs) (laughs) yeah just 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 a little thing i mean it it all goes back like songwriting was fully explained to me again uh, in that george harrison documentary um Mm. uh, living in the material world it's just when paul goes no so we just wrote the calls but george wrote do 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 and like that's the song and i'm like oh yeah that's that's how it works so you get the songwriting credit right um, <laughs> uh, I, I, uh, I'll get yours too one day, Paul. I'll get yours, you know.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and that, that very that very first thing they recorded, um, they gave uh, George a, a
1: credit because he came up with the solo "Cry for a Shadow." Uh, no, it wasn't "Cry no, for a Shadow." No, um, it was, it was. Oh was, no, um, the the th- the the, opera, the B side of that will be the day, which is
3: yes, that thing. Which will come back to us in a second. He, he, he did it
1: live. They cut it out of Glastonbury. Um, oh, okay, folks, this uh, man looks up something on computer. There's no point. All every listener has turned up. In spite of all the
3: danger. Point. In spite of all the danger, I'm sure. It says
1: here what... credited to the quarry men specifically. So that's why oh, okay. George has the credit. I mean, yeah, I was, I was, I was going to say, I don't. I, <laughs> I don't think was George it wrote it yeah. was an
3: early there was an early song I can't remember which one it was but he, anyway
1: oh, yeah. I thought Lennon and jo- George wrote Cry for a Shadow I thought that was the early instrument or something like that uh-huh. but, um, uh-huh. I think George should have got a credit writing credit for uh She said she said as well I think he helped uh, John write that one as well yeah, yeah it gets very complicated I mean Let's not even go into Lennon-McCartney, McCartney-Lennon for certain songs as well. That's oh,
3: a, God, yeah, let's not go
1: get into that.
4: <laughs> that's no good's going to come from episode. getting to
1: that. It, yeah. It's a whole episode, It's and it's going to yeah. be dull to do, but it'll be very interesting to listen to. Um, <laughs> now, um, let's, but let's... Lennon-McCartney just sounds better, Paul. It, it, it just does, sounds better. It does. <laughs> it's why the phrase Bond James Bond sounds way better than... Well, James Bond, you know. <laughs> <laughs> But Brummy Bond, now, that'd be great. But yeah, let's well,
2: get Well,
3: may, maybe next time. Who knows? <laughs> they're, they're taking a very long time to sort of come up with the next James Bond. Uh, well, you know, um, I mean.
1: Yeah, yeah. actually, let's get into it. This is the topical yin to the Beatles yang. How long normally is there between announcing a new Bond and getting rid of the old one? Because I was there for James Bond. I was there for the controversial oh, yes. he- headlines when Craig came into the role. But I don't remember the gap between that and Die Another Day.
3: Yeah, when you said James Blonde, I just assumed you were thinking about the nineteen sixties Beetle cartoon with the <laughs> character James Blonde <laughs> in it. Um, but yes, you're talking about Daniel Craig. I mean, if you look, say, in the eighties, they were turning films out at one every two years, so you'd get A View to a Kill. Roger Moore would leave. They get Roger Dalton. The next one, two years later, there was not even a pause for mm. for sort of for this this sort of change. There was a, there was a big gap for legal reasons between Dalton and. Piers Brosnan. It was like five years or something like that. Was that,
1: was that all part, part of the Blofeld rights and Smursh and stuff like that as well?
3: Uh, I don't think that one was, but all that was been going on in the background um, during the Daniel Craig era.
1: Well, because that whole legal trouble fucked up the quintilogy or quintology because it was clearly not ever going to be Spectre in the first two movies. Yeah. And then there, it's a bit like when in those Avengers films when they didn't know they were going to have Spider-Man. Until Sony said, okay, okay." it's like, oh (laughs) shit, okay, right, we need a 30-minute scene with Spider-Man now. And it's because, you know, it's not about stories, it's about what people recognise. If people see that octopus, granddad will go to the cinema. Yeah, absolutely. I've just thought of a fantastic question, and I'm going to write it down while I ask you this next one. (laughs) Okay. Please tell me about your first encounter with Mr. James Bond
3: uh again it's you know i'm of the generation where it was always around it was you know it would be on the the tv every bank holiday and your families would watch it and that's all gone now you know kids aren't watching james bond films with their dad on a bank holiday anymore they're not in the same room they're they've got their own sort of screens but i saw a view to a kill at the cinema um and you know we had duran duran doing the music so you're like oh this is This is special, you know. Modern. Um, Yeah. That's that's my main memory. But again, being of the generation I am, it was really the GoldenEye video game that sort of made the whole thing
1: relevant. Okay, okay. Now we're getting into it. Now we're getting into it. Yeah, Here's my controversial take. Yes. The Pierce Brosnan movies have the best songs of Ah. any Bond era any Bond era, cumulatively. The Madonna one is the single most underrated. Okay. Part, I mean. People yes. hate that song, man. People fucking hate that song. It's so good. Yeah. So good. I mean, it's such a great title sequence as well because they've got the whole little
3: plot about him being sort of captured in and yeah. tortured and the North in North Korea his face, sort of going uh, on. So there's all that sort of stuff yeah. going on. So, yeah, it's not like Sam Smith where you're just like, oh, God, has
1: it finished yet? He was dressed as a Bond villain the, the other night. That <laughs> Now, that joke will date this episode very specifically to the twenty oh, Awards era. Probably not with Sam Smith. <laughs> yeah. You know, any particular point in the future
3: it's probably going to work great.
1: No, uh, I mean, the funny thing with Sam Smith is I don't dislike him because of his sexuality or his weight, which are the two things that are always in the media. I dislike yeah. him because I think his music's quite rubbish. And unfortunately... All the other people who dislike him are lumped in my camp. And I'm like, well, I'd rather just, oh, not yeah. say anything about it. Like, the yeah. on the wall. It's like that. Spe- Spectre was <laughs> already <laughs> off to a bad start, right? Like, yeah. It was already off to a bad start. It yeah. is a, 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 a very poorly put together bunch of scenes that happen. There's no story. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, the, the second half of No Time to Die suffers from the exact same thing. The first half of No Time to Die could be some of the best Bond ever, particularly the first half hour. Sure. But all the modern ones, they just start tapering off. Like, I was like, oh, mm. No Time to Die, this is really cool. Nanobots. Oh, <laughs> oh
3: come on. <laughs> but it did, it did give us the phrase Blofeld's bionic eye. I that that <laughs> would be eternally grateful. I'm, 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 I think I'm more of a supporter of the last one, No Time to Die. I, when when he strangles him,
1: when he gets him and goes, die, Blofeld, die, I'm like, this <laughs> is awesome. This is like Casino Royale pre titles credit sequence. Yeah, from, yeah. You know. In, um, to,
3: it, Blofeld in his little box yeah. in, like, an Amazon warehouse being wheeled out to be strangled.
1: <laughs> he looked like that um, commander in Star Trek that had been paralysed and had to sit, talk through <laughs> that, that beeping wheelchair. Um, I all of you listening to this probably like Star Trek. You're of that age. Just let me know in the comments down below what I'm referring to. It was it was just that weird thing, though. They'd done this huge, oh, we've got Spectre back. We've got Blofeld
3: back. We'll introduce and we've got Christoph Waltz film.
1: to play him as well. Yeah. yeah. So,
3: great. What should we do with them? Oh, well, we'll just kill him off and have another villain. It's like, oh,
1: God's sake. No, no, no. Not just kill them off. Kill them all off. Kill them all off. At yeah. the same party. Yeah. At the same... <laughs> I mean, imagine if the American government could have done that with like a terrorist cell. It, like there'd be no news ever. <laughs> yes, yeah, so uh, there was a large cadre of insurgents, and mm. we uh, threw them a party, and they all died. It's it's so lazy.
3: It's you need la- to design nanobots that kill people who deserve it. Yeah, if you work out how to do that,
1: then and uh, you know what that. I'm going to end up spoiling future questions. I've got a rigorous order set up here. John. Oh, okay. I really do. Um, you actually mentioned in uh, Chapter 9 that Bond is most commonly watched between father and sons, and I'm not going to lie, that is exactly my experience with it. My yeah. dad loved Roger the Dodge, as he always yeah. used, used to refer to him. I guess Roger Moore's Bond is even probably more so than Lazenby, who is basically... Austin Powers at this point hasn't yeah. aged particularly well to the modern era, has it? I mean, no, I and
3: it's almost part of its charm. That's um, so goofy. it's it's, <laughs> it's it's so Roger Moore. And if someone's <laughs> being themselves to that extent, you just have to go, you just have to go with it. It's it's quite good. There's a lot of chauvinism and chauvinism in the 70s stuff, mm. you know, you can you can see the the um. You know, in the sixties, it was issues of consent that were the real problem. It's like, oh, Roger, she saying no for God's sake. No, it's like Sean, mm-hmm. oh, Sean, she said no. You oh, Sean, this, don't hit her. That in the that does go, and in yeah. the seventies, this real chauvinism comes. In. It's all oh, women drivers and things like that. It's like, oh, for God's sake. Um, yeah, I and so yeah, I- you see all these these sort of things. <laughs> these sort of things change, but the overall yeah. sort of thing. Um, there's a there's a sense that it would be fun to be Roger Moore. Like there's a yeah. sense that he knows that the, his world is absurd, right? And he quite likes it, and he quite enjoys the, just the ridiculousness of his entire existence. And um, there's something very sort of appealing about that.
1: Because if the if if the Moore films were released in the modern context and, you know, make all the necessary changes in this alternative universe to make that make sense. Mm. But if it was released in a modern critical realm, let's say, those films would be accused of directly trying to antagonise the audience into how ridiculous they can be. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like... He jumps the shark several times yeah. and then sticks the landing. You're not supposed yeah. to do that. That's you're supposed, right. to, you're supposed <laughs> to jump the shark and then crash into its open jaws, you know? Yeah. Um, it's, it's the odd thing about the Bond films is they, they
3: are weirdly self-mocking. They do know that they're Bond films and they do let the audience in on, you know, on the, on the joke, as it were. They take themselves very seriously, except when they don't. And sometimes it goes too far, like in you know, in Moonrakers, the the pigeon does a double take when Roger Moore drives his gondola <laughs> through Venice. Uh and, when and he's
1: a clown or
3: Yeah. No, I quite liked him when he was a clown. That was that was quite that was quite weirdly surreal. There's a sometimes there's a sort of um, a strange house of mirrors, nightmarish
1: quality, the surrealness
3: of in in Bond films.
1: Um, Whatever happened to Roger Moore in the Black Turtleneck with a giant Harry, uh, um, uh, Dirty Harry revolver? That was in Live and Let Die for about two minutes, yeah. and, ne- and then you never see it again. I was like, oh, no, that'd be really cool. And it, and it is the poster, weirdly.
3: Yeah. Um, fr- I thought he was about to say with a giant Haribo for some reason. Some <laughs> massive
1: <weird>. sweeties. <laughs> <laughs> but- <laughs> There'd be some pun about confectionery. T- no, um, you do mention that. Uh, in the book that bond and i guess the same can be said for the Beatles as well that they don't take themselves too seriously but they also take themselves very seriously Mm. is that an inherently British quirk and is that required for a lasting pop culture dynasty i think it is that's not to say it's exclusively British Mm
3: -hmm. but i do think um it's it's hard to think of something that feels oh and things lack that like um i don't know like the the Crown or Downton Abbey. I was going to say there's real, real sort of there's a sort the queen, of a, yeah. British culture. There's this like establishment layer on the top. This 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 crust, as you probably want to call it. Um, that for the vast majority of the people in this country. We, it's totally alien and we don't understand it and we wish it should all go away. Uh, but that seems to be the stuff that sells well in America or is promoted abroad, <laughs> or you know, the the public schools of Harry Potter and all and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. That tends to lack the self-awareness that everything else has. And it can't have the self-awareness because if it did, its entire, you know, reason to be would just sort of collapse. It would just, it just it would just go up in a puff of logic, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so it can't it can't have that level of self awareness um and you know that exists but really what's interesting is everything else everything sort of going going on and uh, and that is very very common just to um it's 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 to do with i think you sort of need to remain on the level of your audience and you can't elevate yourself to the, the big i am without sp- splitting that relationship you I know mean, the, the moment you you think you're a superior sort of being, your relationship with the audience is just it's not it's not a proper connection um so it's it's necessary it's it's really needed for musicians and writers and authors and stuff like that to um, recognize that they aren't more special than the audience that they are sort of talking to equals uh, um and in that way it can be really funny.
1: I think it almost puts them both up to the position of an establishment within within the society. Like you've got the royal family mocked inherent mocked incessantly, but also they are to be respected fully. Same with the police, the army, mm. doctors, teachers. It really does push them beyond something just like oh, these are just films. This is just music, and you do talk about a lot in the introduction that this is far more than just. These individual topics at hand. Actually, you, you know what? I'm, I'm I'm getting a bit ahead of myself here, and forgive me for the most basic of bog standard questions here. Yeah, but what? let's get let's let's what? get into the book. Okay, what is Love and Let Die about? Well, uh, it is, <laughs> uh, well,
3: I, yeah, there's a yeah. I knew there was something, I knew there was something, um, the uh-huh. gist of it, the gist of
1: it is, it, it is so complicated to actually, Im- it's it's a difficult elevator pitch, I feel, if you know what I mean, I feel like.
3: No, it's the simplest, it's basically Bond and the Beatles are twins, they were born on the same day, the yep. first Beatles uh, single, and the first James Bond film came out on the 5th of October, 1962. Uh, and they both became these huge sort of cultural monsters that have very different views on what it means uh to be british um so it's looking at their story um because uh, there's something weirdly um well, both are utterly implausible, right neither of them make any sense you know yeah. the, the the idea that you know you could create a uh, an action hero and make a film of an action hero and then go on to make, you know, 26 sequels over, like, 60 years, all of which are successful, all of which are make money. Utterly impossible. There's no way that could happen. Every film producer would do that if there was any way that it was possible to do. And it wasn't for the fact that James Bond exists, you know. The whole idea would be, would be absurd. Uh, and in a similar way, there's no way a band could do what the Beatles did, you know, in terms of their impact, their, their uh, uh, cultural and musical sort of, um, you know, the idea that four lads could get together and, and hope to have the level of impact that the Beatles—again, it's just, it's just impossible. It's not going to happen. So neither of them makes sense, but we don't notice because they're they're so familiar. They're so but part of our lives and always have been and they've always been there and we think we know them. So we rarely look at them and go, Jesus Christ, did that really happen? That's insane. That's just mad. Um, And for those reasons, it sort of makes sense to talk about them together because they don't really fit with their peers. You know, Bond and other action movies, they're different things. And The Beatles, even, you know, when you get... um, 60s nights or something like that they probably won't include the beatles because there's a sort of understanding that it's something different to for the 60s music uh you know we're we're long past the point where people would you know talk about the stones and the
1: beatles as being this, it's in you some ways, well. yeah, you know, that, it, no, that, that, that was a very good passage in the book. Yeah, it was like yeah. this guy knows, this guy knows.
3: That <laughs> <laughs> was that, it was the case. It used to be the Beatles and the Stones, and that was, but now it's people talk about the Beatles and Shakespeare, you know. No, no shame on the Stones, great at being the Rolling Stones, don't get me wrong. But the Beatles, the further we get away from them, uh, the more perspective we get on them. Uh, the, just the bigger they become. And as I say in the book, the only thing that ever becomes bigger than the Beatles is the Beatles.
1: Now, the reason I ask you that specific question is because I don't want people to get confused and just to think that in this book, Love and Let Die, that it's just you going through the Beatles story separately and the Bond story separately with a couple of random connections. And we'll, and we'll go through some of the obvious ones later. But I, I just like that this was essentially a a histography of culture seen through the lens of the Beatles and Bond. And, you know, you've been doing this as a a history and culture writer for a while, pop culture writer. What can Mm. the study of pop culture and culture tell us about a society that the study of kings and queens and wars and economics can't tell us?
3: Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, if you go to the history section of Waterstones, and if you if you look at all the books um they're essentially uh stories of power they're all about you know power be that you know military power um you know economic power like the east india company uh, uh symbolic power like the monarchy all our history books we tell our story our history through through an account of power um uh, there are other ways and one is the imagination. One is, you know, our inner selves. Uh, they can reveal so much more about the changes that happen to our society um, than just looking at power. And if you, if you, if you, you know, read all those books, there's a sense that, oh, well, what's a film, you know, what's a song? What's that sort of got to do with uh, how we became who we are? They seem ephemeral. They seem really impo- dis- unimportant. but I see, I see, um, Imagination and power is like fire and water. You know, they are very different. They act on us very different. Um, and yet, you know, a forest fire is going to have as much impact as a tsunami. They they are both phenomenally powerful. Um, and the way that music, uh, particularly music in this case, has changed us. The way that people in the 1970s were so different to people in the 1950s, largely not entirely, but largely through those cultural changes that were spearheaded by the Beatles, you know, is deep and profound. And if you if you only look at the story of power, you aren't really understanding what it's like to be alive and like what it's like to be human. You know, our our uh, our music, our our films, they're reflections of our inner selves. You know, that's what art is, it's a mirror to the soul. Uh, and that and when that changes, we change. And it's, it, you know. Uh, if there's a change in our culture, if there's a change in our art. Our art, that means there's a change in what it's like to live in society at that point, and it's just reflecting that. So you need them both. You have to have them both. Um, so yeah, I'm all for writing uh, books that focus on the immaterial as much as the uh, the mighty, I guess.
1: If you want to just look at it on a more uh, basic bog standard graph as well. I mean, how many people know trivia about the Beatles and about Bond? But who knows what the Queen's sister's maiden name is? You, you know, what I mean, <laughs> who knows where all of the stately homes are? Do you know where Evesham is? I don't. You know, uh... no,
3: ex- ex- exactly. But those will be the things that his- history departments will be sort of fully aware yeah. of. You know, they will know where Evesham is and, and things like that. As if you know, all this matters. You know, honestly,
1: no. But I don't. It? I don't feel like in ten years when Netflix is finished with the Crown and does my scripted Beatles show, which is ten seasons long, a season, <laughs> a season an album, oh, uh, yeah. various cameo roles throughout the show to boost my own profile, blah, blah, blah. But, I'll, you know, is Netflix going to have an article where Judy Dench goes, you know, you shouldn't watch the new Beatles show. It's not very respectful to what yeah. happened with Paul McCartney in the 60s. I, they,
3: I, no, the, the, the Crown will never mention anything in British history in which working class people do anything extraordinary. <laughs> so if you're watching, say the, the 1960s you know, came through.
1: All, yeah. uh, all the common people have to do is be crushed by coal mining shafts. Yes, disastrous. absolutely. That, that's literally and, and, it. And they made that. They made *Abbey Man about the Queen's
3: emotions. Oh my, But Beatles, you know, yeah. the, you know, <laughs> uh, the Beatles, no mention at all. England won the World Cup, no mention at all. It's it's just anything that doesn't, you know, glorify the uh, um, the monarchy. Um, it's, it doesn't exist in that sort of story.
1: There's just a whole bottle episode where Charles just listens to Revolver. Uh, <laughs> 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 I think this is bloody good, you know. <laughs> I, I think Tiggy would love this one. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, there was that. There was one uh, time uh, in Goldfinger where Bond, our establishment killer, um, dissed the Beatles. It's, it's quite, uh, a, fa- it's quite without, a famous line.
1: Without earmuffs or something. That's
3: know. that's the line.
1: You know what, folks, and we'll play the clip right.
2: Who needs it?
4: My dear girl, there are some things that just aren't done, such as drinking Dom Perignon
3: 53 above a temperature of 38 degrees Fahrenheit. That's
4: as bad as listening to the Beatles without earmuffs.
3: And... It's such a it's such a moment that clangs because you know the whole point about Bond is he's supposed to know what quality is you know he's supposed to know what's good, he knows all the right suits, the right cars, the right food, the right drink. Um, yeah, when he's he not gets hit, it though, wrong he? he's no hit. exactly when he gets it wrong, it's a bit of a shock and you'll notice that at no point in any Bond film after that moment does he make any comment about culture ever again? You know, he never goes. You know, oh, here's here's what I think about Beyonce's last. Album, you know, <laughs> and it would be weird if he did. It would be really wrong. <laughs> he doesn't exist on that plane. It's it's a.
1: Well, no, because well, at the rate right, these people get cancelled as well. Like, imagine if in Quantum of Solace, you, you know, he was like, I like, uh, I like Kanye West. Uh, I like Prince Andrew uh, <laughs> and I like J.K. Rowling. You know, it's like, oh, James, no, yeah. no, bro, no. No, but in, in Quantum of Solace, we had Strawberry Field. Of course. <sighs> Agent, you know what? I think I've got a list of silly little connections. Yeah, um, Bond Mox and Beatles Godfinger. Goldfinger. My dear girl, there are some things that just aren't done, such as drinking Dom Perignon, 53, above the temperature of 38 degrees Fahrenheit. That's as bad as listening to the Beatles without earmuffs. Um, <laughs> We've got Agent Strawberry Fields played by the woefully underutilized Gemma Arterton. True. Um, but, yes. But but I love Gemma's arse a ton. That was my joke at school. Um <laughs> Ringo marries Barbara back, a Bond girl, of course. Paul writes Live and Let Die. Uh, one of the Bond Girls in A Hard Days Night is in um is in one of the is in a Bond. I think I think she's in Doctor No, as well as the guy who plays M is also in A Hard Days Night as well. Oh, so
3: yes, you're no you're thinking of um uh Margaret Nolan. Yes. Who's uh well she she's in the film as Masseuts but she's also the woman painted gold on the poster of Goldfinger.
1: And finally help is also one big bond spoof in itself which is Yeah, absolutely. that now that's uh that snake or a boros like yeah. itself you know you know what I mean um yeah and, and I, I think looked at that McCartney
3: actually, got a, an Aston Martin DB5. Yes uh well and a db 6 but the the that period where he had a bit of time off. Mm. So he goes, um, what shall I do? I'll get a disguise and I'll drive around in France, France in an Aston yeah. Martin to be the most Bond-like sort of character that he, that he could be. And and that led to the idea of maybe the Beatles could be in disguise. Maybe Beatles could become yeah. you know, Sergeant Peppers. Yeah. And I love the fact that the gadgets he had in that car include a record player.
1: Well, um, do you remember McCartney's car in Give My Regards to Broad Street, which is oh, basically yeah. a Bond yeah. car. It's got his schedule and it talks to him. It's, yeah. It's pre, I believe, it's pre-Night Rider. I might be wrong there. I think it might be pre-Night Rider. It is,
3: because I'm, try, I'm trying to remember. I don't wish to give any spoilers to people who have yet to see Give My Regards to Bond Street, but they, it's a Broad or,
1: Street. Or, or Night Rider. Uh.
3: <laughs> or or Night Rider. But... Um, The car changes when he's in a dream or not, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So most of the the film, it's it's, it's
3: this weird dream sort of version of his car. Yeah. Yeah, that's the one that... I
1: know. We we ain't going to be in London till Monday. (laughs) (laughs) uh,
3: But but yeah, so he was in this Aston Martin when he was driving to see uh, Cynthia Lennon after John had dumped her. Uh, And that's when he started writing Hey Jude in in this Bond car. So the the amount of... um, Crossover and all things things like that, and connections are just... I mean, because the, they've both got such huge cultural footprints, they're obviously going to sort of tread on each other all the time. So it's you can have a bit of fun with that.
1: Let's talk about writing the book, because this is the stuff that I'm particularly interested in as a man who has perennially always felt like he's had a book in him.
0: Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now...
1: Well, what, uh, what stopped it? What stopped it coming out, Sam? Oh, I mean... um, because then I'd have to just stop being a lazy asshole, you know. You know what I mean? And, and that, mm. and, and, and that is a particular hill that all men must cross at some point, and women mm. and everyone else in between. But I feel for you. Uh, no, nah, because it's like you know, friends, family, work, podcast, time off, exercise, good diet, yeah. and it's like something's got to give. Sweet. I might, I might get really fat and a book. I think that's the only option I've got. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I, and I'm talking Brendan Fraser in the Whale. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Which, uh, which actually is the worst movie I've seen all year, but it's only just the start of 2023, so there's plenty of time for that to change. Okay. Um, I hadn't seen it, but I'd heard heard the opposite, so...
4: Um, okay.
1: Mm-hmm. Terrible story, terrible writing. Although he does have the best scene of a man-eating pizza ever. Okay, <laughs> yeah. okay.
3: I don't have to go to the cinema
1: to see that, though. No. I could just I could just angle the mirror. So I... um. I was there with my mates. There's about four of us, and I went, "Can we go?" And my friend told me, "Went if one of us wants to stay, we all stay." And the guy on the end, (laughs) Danny, you bastard, he really wanted to see the end. And when I went to the toilet halfway through, I went to the concession stand, and they went, "How long's left of the whale?" Five thirty start, and she went about twelve minutes. I was like, "Oh, thank God! Oh, thank God! Okay, I'll sit. I'll sit. I'll sit through this tripe." Yeah. Yeah, talk about the book. You've got Beatles. You've got Bond. You've got the connective tissue of Britain pop culture and the zeitgeist psyche of everyone who lives in this country. Yeah. How do you go about, I mean, we're going to get to the structure, which might be the answer, I don't know, very shortly, but do you just start writing a bunch of Beatles stuff? Do you then start writing a bunch of Bond stuff? Do you then try and work them together? Was there a version of the book where you weren't following the structure, where it was just, just pages of information you know uh, no
3: it's it's the uh, the simple act of putting the two things next to each other sort of dictated what it was because we think we know the Beatles and we think we know bond and they're so familiar to us and we you know it's only when you put them next to each other that it's suddenly all this all these different angles on them are revealed and all this stuff about masculinity and you know class and uh and Britain over those years, all all this sort of starts pouring out of them, and you just go, oh, I hadn't, I hadn't noticed all these sort of um, these these aspects of, of them before. Um, and then it's just a case of getting all that down, and just yeah, I put it in chronological order because that would that sort that sort of worked. But it was um, I, what it was. I'd written a book about William Blake before, called William Blake Versus the World, and in Blake's mind. Um, Opposites, countries, as he calls it, are, are the thing that defines us. So, whereas a lot of religious writers would go, oh, "Well, well, hell's bad, but like heaven, that's great." So let's write a load of stuff about heaven. We're really into heaven. To Blake, that was just insane because you couldn't have hell without heaven. So he wrote the marriage of heaven and hell. He kept them together, and it was the it was the um, it was the it was the energy and dynamism between these two poles. Um, that was what mattered and that was what was interested. And so I thought, oh, this, that's an interesting way. I wonder if it would work, you know? I wonder if you could just get two seemingly opposed uh, subjects and put them next to each other, and they would just, between them, they'd just sort of crackle, and it would be full of insight and uh, and interest. And uh, so that's, once I'd spotted that um, they were both twins and born on the same day, all that sort of seemed to fall into place. And so, in theory, it's just a chronological tale where you hop between them, the two. Well, at least I thought it would be. But the amount of chapters that I would start thinking, this is a Beatles chapter, and you go, no, actually, it's not. It's, a, it's as equal as much a Bond chapter as it is a Beatles yeah. chapter. Yeah.
1: Let me just interrupt you there. So, folks, for anyone who hasn't read the book yet, which I certainly recommend you do, um, most of the chapters will either follow... Well, it's uh, John picks a year, so we start off in uh, 1945 uh, with the backdrop of Ringo and post-war England, and then that goes all the way up right to the modern day. Uh, so the way I've shown it here, uh, I've got the first 10 chapters Beatles, 45, Bond, 52, Beatles, 56. Then we have a joint chapter in 1960, and this was the one that I thought was really interesting. Was like, oh, this is where this motherfucker's starting to tie these things together. I see yeah. what he's doing here. Yeah. <laughs> it's sex, it's sex, 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 sex. Bond, yeah. sex figure, Beatles are having their sex lives in Fleming's sex life. It was all brought together. Beautifully, boss. It really was. This was absolutely fantastic right You brought it all together. Only chapter four, and then you know we've got to go through, and then it's Bond sixty one, Beatles sixty two. Yeah, and we have a joint chapter in chapter nine, which is the mania of both um, of both groups. I
3: thought Bond mania be- and Beatle mania. Yeah. <laughs> no,
1: the, the, the,
3: the thing about the the sex chapter that that just was. There were so many moments like this where I've when I discovered that literally two weeks before the Beatles went to Hamburg.
4: Ian Fleming, Ian Fleming reviewed
3: the sex clubs. <laughs> wrote in the Sunday Times basically a sex tourism article about the Hamburg sex clubs. And it's just like. <laughs>
1: It's like, dude. I mean, like, there was a part of me thinking, ah, oh, this guy, he's just written this book because of the the nineteen sixty two date. There's not yeah. going to be many more connections. He's tugging at... When I saw, I was like, bloody <laughs> hell! There is a lot. There's a yeah. lot going on here. <laughs> oh my gosh! But I love that chapter, and then uh, chapter nine as well, and that introduces the topic of uh, crisis in masculinity and like how Bond and the Beals these two diametrically opposed views of masculinity. Mm. And you do that basically throughout throughout the book. You lull us into this sense of security with bomb, Beatles, bomb, Beals, And then it's like, and it's almost like a, a plenary chapter every three chapters. Like, <laughs> this is what you've learned, and this is how you're now going to apply it in the real world, see you on Monday. And I really enjoyed that, that mm. uh, writing style. And the structure features a lot of short chapters. Mm, is yes. this naturally your writing style, or did you want to create a fast reading experience?
3: Uh, it's Books sort of suggest what their structure should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, most books I write tend to have quite long chapters. Mm-hmm. Um, this one wanted to be fast and pacey. And um, to be honest, this book just wanted to be bigger and bigger and bigger. I hadn't sort of – I always had this notion that – Beefy, yeah. it's, it's it's 140,000 words. I always had this rule that you know you, you shouldn't go over a hundred thousand words because that's like just rude, right? Because people <laughs> they've got a lot on, you know. If you can't say what you want to say in a hundred thousand words, you're really not trying hard enough. I always struggle to sort of make them punchy and sharp and stuff like that. <laughs> I hadn't sort of re- uh, reckoned with the fact that the Beatles are infinite. And you can never
1: say everything. Have you, you seen how big Tune In is? You reference them. it enough in this. Yeah, you yeah absolutely. Oh my god, absolutely, I do. Yeah. Um, by the by the way, just as an aside, it's nice to see someone basically bow down to Tune In in the middle of their own book. It was very oh. humble. <laughs> What's it? Because, like, so many other Beatles books you read, they try and go, no, 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 no. You can read Tune In, but this one, it's like yours. Was yeah. like this is a very interesting work. It's a very specific you know, part of mm. pop, pop, pop culture. But I like the way you tipped your hat in, if you want to know everything about everything and lose your mind.
3: Yeah, and Mark Lewison's saying, the guy. Absolutely.
1: Because
3: <laughs> what Mark Lewison's done, uh, not just him, but, you know, primarily him, is, is he's nailed down exactly what happened to a degree that I don't think any cultural phenomenon has, has had before. I, th- I think we know more about the Beatles than anything in history. And that sounds, uh, I'm just making that off the top of my head. I've thought a lot about that. It's that point when we had cameras and we had newspapers following them every day, every every single day, what they did was recording, recording, recording. And a yeah, proper historian like Mark Levison has really nailed down exactly what happened. So even there's still things like Get Back where we go, oh, we didn't quite have it right. You know, um, the, the, we sort of know to a really good degree what happened. But that means we can start writing, you know, about the more interesting question of, well, what does it mean? Mm-hmm. You know, which is, which is um, still quite unexplored territory. And I think there'll be a lot of it. And I think there'll be a lot more books by female writers yeah. um, coming up. And I'm really interested to see where the next sort of phase of, of Beatles books
1: takes us. Um, I, mean, I mean, the two most fascinating things I've read that the Beatles themselves have released... Uh, Questlove did the introduction for the Revolver box set book. Oh, and then yeah. uh, Hanif Qureshi, who you reference in this book, yeah. uh, he did the forward for the non-vinyl box set Get Back Peter Jackson coffee table book. Yes. And it was like, oh, my God, reading the Beatles from a perspective that's not a 45-year-old white man from Clapham, this is actually very yeah. interesting. And, it is. And it's insane how just... Tweaking the person telling the same story mm. completely recontextualizes it and you know everything's everything's changed. Uh it's I, I can only imagine Mark Lewison is so happy that Eyes of the Storm is coming out before he releases part two as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
3: absolutely. Um what was I gonna say? It's there is something mythic about their story. I mean it it's you think after a point, I've read enough Beatles books now. I know. I get it. I get it. I know what happens. I'll, go, I'll move on to something else. I'm going to get bored of this. It never happens. The more you read about them, the more interesting they become. And the, the, just the relationship between those four men, um, it's, not, it's not a normal level of um, story. It is, it is myth. It is endless it is um, something you just constantly go back to and inform by. It's you know you don't get that with I don't know Culture Club or, or you know U two or something. There's the there's something about their story that is um, out of all the band stories out of all the, the, the music all sort of uh, histories. There's something about theirs. The, it's just bottomless,
1: and um, it's probably yeah, easier well, to think of a facet of British life that they didn't impact. Yes, <laughs> yes. Like, but... like, shipping trading routes were not affected <laughs> by the Beatles. Well, a you book. say that, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had to yeah. open an extra lane in, in the Liverpool uh, Docklands to get the vinyl in. You know, yeah, yeah. yeah. Everything, everything changes. I mean, yeah, but no, yeah. it, it is the
3: relationship between those four and you know, how everything that happened, you look at, you know, what that tells us about George or what that tells us about what Ringo was thinking or something like that. Mm.
1: Endlessly fascinating, it really is. I mean, it's also the four archetypes as well. I mean, everyone projects themselves onto at least one Beatle, at least per story, like oh, oh yeah. if i was john in that situation i would have said this <laughs> i mean it's it's the greatest what-if story ever it's very oh. it's it's an idealized version of the nirvana narrative like taking uh-huh. yourselves out at, at the peak of your success but nirvana didn't come out just when television was entering everyone's homes nirvana didn't yeah. come out when women were sexually liberated when masculinity was changed entirely just yeah. after a giant world war, Yeah. Um, film still in its relevant you know, infancy. Yeah, the, the arrival of LSD. Yeah, I mean, it's it borderline risks on the ultimate reductive narrative of they were in the right place at the right time. It, it's sometimes it's it can, a, you know, it's absolutely true,
3: but that's normal for all stories. You know, if you look at history.
1: Shakespeare, uh,
3: things yeah, were yeah. right for this to happen at that point. You do get some um historians from a very you know, public school Oxbridge background who do stick to this though. They go, Oh, well, if if it wasn't uh, they were just in the right time, uh, at the right place at the right time, if it hadn't been them, it would have been another band. It would be like you know, Jerry and the Pacemakers, and they, you were gonna band, say
1: Jerry would, and the Pacemakers, would be, would be
3: the 60s band, yeah. and it's not because they never say oh, well, you know, if if Churchill hadn't turned up, you know, there would have been someone else who would have been the Churchill. They'd never do that. They have this real sort of um, issue with acknowledging uh, that there's something unique about the Beatles.
1: Historians seem almost upset that the defining pop culture event of the 60s wasn't uh, a battle that killed 400,000 working-class people, you know, you know what I mean?
4: Uh,
3: Yeah.
1: uh, so um, I imagine the hardest part about your chapters being that they are so short must be the idea of killing one's darlings. Was it hard mm. to ensure that everything was brisk as it was? Or well, that, what, that's you know,
3: that's what editing is for, really. Yeah. you know?
1: It's, is is there stuff on the cutting room floor then, to
3: say the least? There's there's a lot of crap on the cutting room floor. <laughs> ah, I love it. Uh, uh, you wouldn't want to go through it. I could, I've, I haven't gone through it myself. Mm. I've, I've saved you. You know, I've I have saved you. You know, that's uh, yeah, so, I yeah. Mean, so
1: so do you pull whole topics or is there a game of how few words can I talk about this particular topic? Uh you write it and then you go over it and you make write it better
3: and then you write it pacier and you sharp and you and you you know and you get it as good as you can. But still, I mean, oh, there's a Brian Epstein chapter that should be in
1: there that just never quite Got where it needed to be. Well, okay, you know what? I'm going to counter that because Mm. what I liked as I don't know Bond in that much detail. I've seen Mm. most of the movies. I I love most movies. Yeah, Um, you've
3: grown up in this this country, so therefore you.
1: Therefore, (laughs) no, like. I'm always shocked when people say, I'm never shocked when people say, I haven't seen Star Wars or Harry Mm. Potter, you know, fine. But if you haven't heard the Beatles or seen a whole Bond movie, that's when you start to think you're from Planet Zog. Yeah. But um, what I liked about your writing, Star Wars, it was very like, keep up, kids, because I'm not going to spoon feed you this. And as as a a Beatle aficionado who knows the story inside and out, I kind of liked the... Almost just a, a hand wave to sometimes like, and now they're with Brian Epstein. We don't need yeah. a whole. Ch- you, know, uh, you probably know the story, person reading this because you probably read the generic Beatle book and the generic Bond book. So I liked how you didn't hold our hands with everything. Like, yeah, you no, know, it was more like. If you held a hand through a moment, it was probably because of some emotional impact. Like, we need to know who Aunt Mimi was because that's mm. how you know who John is. But you don't need to know about Brian Epstein and wanted to impress his dad and the shop. And all you need to know is he smelt a smelly, sweaty room and, and saw the four lads, and, and, <laughs> and now the story's moving on. Um, so, yeah, I really did enjoy that. And something else I really enjoyed about the book was the digressional moments throughout
3: mm. Well, uh, that's I can't help myself. You should see my other books, dear God.
1: Oh, no, uh, my best friend Tom's read both of your William William Blake books, and he said the same thing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> also, uh, a William Blake quote starts the book as well, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. I feel like is just you being meta towards yourself more than anything. But, uh... Well, I, I,
3: I'm, I am trying to normalise mentioning William Blake. <laughs> it would be a far better, you know, society if people because there's a lot of. Uh, people, there's a lot of references in Blake that people don't, that aren't used universally. Know we, you know, we know, uh, you know, the Greek mythology, but we don't know Blake's mythology. We're not taught it at school. You can't make a reference to Eurizen and expect people to know what Look, you dude, mean and the, things the like only, that. So just trying to sort of normalize the, that.
1: The only William Blake reference I could ever pull out my hat is Red Dragon. That's a oh, yes. It. Yeah, that's about it, <laughs> and that's because it's a sequel to one of the most iconic Oscar winning films of all yeah. time, so yeah. it really doesn't count. Yeah, was it a prequel? I can't remember, it, might be a it prequel. is a prequel, yeah, yeah. It a prequel. Um, because they did Hannibal straight after, which have, which, have, no, sorry, they did Hannibal a few years after with Julian Moore, everyone hated it, and yeah. within a year of the premiere, they'd already shot and edited Red Dragon. Uh-huh. And it's directed uh-huh. by Brett Ratner, who's now been cancelled, who's one of the Me Too people, a real scumbag. Oh, uh, okay. And everything he did after that was absolute garbage, like X-Men 3, horrible bosses. <laughs> and yet, Red Dragons, this like almost perfect sequel to or prequel to Silence of the Lambs. It's yeah. it's it's like you know, Paul McCartney releasing Ram and then releasing Give My Regards to Broad Street. It's like how does, how does this work? <laughs> um you know what? Uh let's just uh talk talk, talk about your little di- uh, digressions though because p- the two that i particularly loved uh mm. was uh leslie woodhead who was the uh the film the guy who filmed the first cavern gig with mm. um, you know that clip of some other guy that we all know and then uh the bricklayer's mate and the daughter of the, bri- of, the of the brigadier <laughs> <laughs> if you just have a page on both these people it's like right you could hear the record scratch. I was like, right. Yeah. By the way, well, you, I mean, love
3: it. Love it. Leslie Woodhead was the guy who shot that famous footage of the band at the Cavern before they were even signed, just yeah. a few days after, after Ringo had joined the band. So it's like, historically, it's gold dust. We it's want that Ringo.
4: First, yeah. Yeah.
3: <laughs> we want Pete. Um, it's the beginning of that period where the world turned their eyes and filmed them, recorded them and everything, that's the thing that started off. And the fact that he was a spy <laughs> and the fact that, he, you know, he, had a,
1: uh, he spoke Russian. Did he speak Russian? He listened to Russian communication. It does not help and, paranoid schizophrenics telling them this, by the way, because now yeah. Beatles were a government psyop. Uh, you know, <laughs> they, they killed Kennedy and they yeah. brought in the Beatles. Yeah. Man, you know, yeah, definitely feels like that.
3: I mean it was it was just so perfect for my um I wouldn't even call it a digression it was absolutely crucial the fact that he was <laughs> so sh- the text, sorry, the fact that text that he was text so text. shaken by the beatles um and, <laughs> and his understanding that something enormous was coming that when he was driving back to Manchester after him, he had to sort of stop the car and be sick in a ditch
1: <laughs> yeah yeah
3: you know <laughs> that's just that's plot mate that's not that's not that's exactly where it's going yeah yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. uh the the others was um on the day of uh 5th of october 1962 um the day of the first love me do and and dr no coming out that was the headlines in in the newspapers and it, it was one of those stories that just seems absurd now because it required a respect for the upper classes that um Did not exist after the Beatles, and the 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 story was that a a bricklayer's mate had got engaged to a brigadier's daughter, and that made front page news because it was so appalling to newspapers. Almost like the last this had happened.
1: That's the last hurrah, the death, the agonal death groans of the colonial British Empire. That so it it sort
3: of needed that to show where we'd come from, you know, because it because where we'd come from now looks so mad. So absurd that it's easy, we, we blank it from our minds. It's easy to forget about that sort of stuff, but no, that's what the country was like when the Beatles arrived, you know? and so, hence you can see how different it is after they've left.
1: I guess a lot of your digressions then are text and not subtext, then would be the best way to put it. I dare say
3: there's a few digressions in there for a, <laughs> you know, when there's well, a funny tale to be told.
1: Well, there's also, I mean, I
3: got a- away with a whole chapter on Christopher Lee.
1: Yes, I haven't got to that one, but I saw the title and I was like, what the fuck is this? Well, (laughs) Christopher
3: Lee was a Bond villain at the same time.
1: Yeah, Yeah,
3: at the same time he was on the cover of Band on the Run. So he crosses over between the two. (laughs) Christopher. But in many ways, it was an excuse just to put a chapter about Christopher Lee in because any book would be massively improved by that.
1: Well, um, Christopher Lee was going to be in, was in Lord of the Rings. The Beatles were going to be in a Lord of the Rings one, you know. you, you can Yeah, really just Peter, keep... Peter, Peter Jackson. Yeah, yeah. Many a crossover. Oh, we still need. To... He dropped a hint that he was doing something Beatles related about three or four months ago. Come he on, did. come on, Peter. I mean, I'm
3: just, I'm just hoping he's got uh, all the rushes for Magical Mystery Tour because they
1: filmed <gasps> a lot. Yo, didn't, they? They filmed didn't even so consider that. Stuff. There's he... so much stuff that they oh, filmed. Oh, fucking hell. Oh, yeah. my God. It
3: might just be he's demixing, you know, uh, the first few albums or some or some technical sort of thing like that. That's possible. But I imagine oh, if I it... I want it, imagine... it to
1: be something that, like, makes Lewison have to re-release the first book again. Like, oh, by the way, <laughs> there was a camera crew for the entirety of the Please Please Me album. Like, what? You know? Don't... Because he, he would... So you know,
3: he's tempted to. You can just tell. You know, he's Dude, he's like, got loads of stuff to put yeah. in there now that
1: wasn't in there. Just but,
3: let him, let him get on with it. Let him finish the.
1: I love any author that writes a book about an artist still releasing records. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> what's the fucking point? Why are you doing it? Because the moment, because I mean, uh, Luca Parazzi, an author who I admire greatly, uh, his book um, Paul McCartney: The Recording Sessions basically built this hmm. podcast from the ground up in its earliest days. Uh-huh. And then Egypt Station, McCartney 2, um, and McCartney 3 come out. It's like, ah, oh, luckily he's releasing a new, a, a new book now. But there's always that, that void, you know what I mean?
3: Yeah. I do wonder if Mark Lewison, when he went to the publishers and go, I'm going to write the definitive uh, guide, the definitive biography of the Beatles, it'll, be, it'll have to be three volumes because it's going to be that definitive. I, I wonder if he kicks himself that he didn't go, it'll be 10 volumes, one a year. 15 volumes. Yeah, there'll be like a 400-page book every few years rather than a 1,000-page book every eight years or 10 years or however long it's sort of been.
1: No, uh, there's a competition between Game of Thrones fans and Beatles fans to see which of their (laughs) uh, messiahs is going to die off before finishing the, you know. Oh,
3: no, it's... it's, I know many a Beatles fan who lives in fear (laughs) of... (laughs) of checking the news one day and finding that poor Mark is no longer with us with his work unfinished. Maybe Cause...
1: George R.R. R. Martin would have to finish it off for us, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my gosh.
3: Every, every time he does a talk, people are like, oh, is he looking well? Oh, he's looking all right. He's like, he's looking healthy. That's good. <laughs>
1: uh, it's it's the same lucky give Mick Jagger whenever you see him dancing on the first night of a tour. It's like, is he going to break a hip? Or... <laughs> no, he's still got it? Okay, wicked. Um. Now, just as a as a quick aside, I want to compliment you on the title for this book, Love and Let ah. It Absolutely incredible title. I shameless, love a isn't it. Oh, bloody shameless it. Shameless.
3: It was originally, I sold it uh, called Happiness is a Warm Gun. Right. Even! <laughs> I know. And I thought, that's a cool title. I'm yeah, actually yeah. a book called Happiness is a Warm Gun. I like that. But you did then have to explain to people what it was. And then. When it just came to me that oh I should call it Love and Let Die, I thought oh I can't that's just too ob It's just too right it's all loves the title so I know he shameless <laughs> he loves it. And I, I remember I, I had lunch with my publisher and I thought back in my mind as we were talking I was going should I just mention this possible title I shouldn't should I but I, and I did and she was like yep, yeah, that's it that's the title that's what we're doing. <laughs> and once. You know, once it's, it was there, it was so obviously exactly what the book was, yeah. exactly what the book was about, and people just got it. People just sort of got the book uh, from that. It had to be that. But it's kind of like a, I've made a bit of a rod for my back with that book because now the publisher's like, why don't you write something like Live and Let Die, which people would want to buy? You know, having accidentally come up with something that's like insanely commercial, <laughs>
1: I sort of feel I have to try and... Uh, follow that. I can't just. Well, it's funny you say that because I've got a couple of titles for your future works that oh, we could go could on. Do. Yeah, uh, do- Doctor Nowhere, man. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Skyfall, my loving. Uh uh-huh. The man with the golden slumbers. Uh, Octopussy's garden. I was waiting for that. That's the one I always go <laughs> <laughs> Octopussy's <laughs> yeah. garden
3: is
4: the one. Uh,
1: Tomorrow never knows or dies.
4: Yeah.
1: <laughs> and uh, for no one's eyes only.
3: i I love that that, um of all the film titles they're all taken from fleming all the james bond film titles came from fleming uh until they'd totally run out of anything usable and so person that they went to was ringo and they get that tomorrow never dies Mm. um became you know tomorrow never took it from t- tomorrow never knows so that's another of the little sort of crossover coincidences that, <laughs> that just seems a bit too good to be true just too perfect
1: and i'm sure sheryl crow who sung the song has featured on several ringo solo albums as well
3: uh,
1: so uh-huh, you know, uh-huh, uh-huh. the connections just
3: yeah. keep on coming there were so many um in the later books where i don't know um you know george harrison's uh relationship with Patty would be coming apart, and whether the, or Ringo would be splitting with Maureen. And it's always, they'd just come back from a party at Roger Moore's house. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, that's funny. Recently, I had David Rees on the show to talk about his book, uh, Beatles 63. And something that I've, I mentioned then was the idea that most people seem to have an affinity for the middle or latter era of the music. Hmm. But it's the early two or three years that are actually the most interesting to both read and write about yeah do you agree?
3: Um, I would certainly agree that they're fascinating mm-hmm. um, but more so? I don't know There's a, uh, uh, it's, e- it's probably easier to get a good paragraph out of the breakup years Ooh, than it is to, yeah, yeah. you know it's just on a human level Okay. Um, but the, the you know the, the psychedelic peaks of you know magical mystery tour and salted Pepper and stuff. How could you not want to? How could you not want to explore those? How could you not want to write about all that sort of stuff? Um, yeah, they're all. I mean, I'm not going to pick one. They're all valid. I mean, if you look at a film like Backbeat,
1: um, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, it's great. It's just clearly great. Um, Ooh, actually, I th- there's something I wanted to uh, mention that we forgot earlier. I forgot earlier, sorry. Um, Mm. There's another structural element to your book, which is this element of a ticking bomb, which felt very (laughs) Hitchcockian. (laughs) Like, yes, I'm going to put this bomb under the table. Yes. Uh, Here we are. Um, What's the specific wording? Oh, yeah, initiate countdown... Detonate, aftermath, and then grow up 007. Yeah. Um, when when did that idea for those particular like the, the, of chapters...
3: Yeah, those are. it's basically the book is divided into four parts, but instead of being part one, part two, part three, and part four, it is exactly what you said. Mm. Um, and it was because it was quite a long book, uh, and it wasn't originally like that. Um, I think it was my publisher who so said, I think you divide it up into bits. Um, because I don't know, it's just something. It, it's just for the reader. It's sort of more manageable, you know. Um, and especially because the first few chapters are kind of like that's just about uh, Ringo or that's just about Ian Fleming. They don't cross over until they the, the band, the records, and the um, films start to come out. So having that first under the heading "Initiate Countdown," it sort of gave it a sort of a prequel sort of vibe. Um and then uh, yeah, you know, the rest are self-evident, I think. I didn't quite like Grow Up 007 uh for the for the last chunk.
1: <laughs> yeah, challenging your inner Llewellyn Davis there. Yes. <laughs>
3: yeah, he's fa- he's fascinating because um well he's he's absolutely necessary because those films need someone who, who's not impressed by James Bond.
4: Like, <laughs> That's so
1: true. If, actually, if, you are if not shit about
3: if Bond. everyone's like, oh wow, James Bond, it would just be awful. But he just thinks he's an idiot. And to have to have that ingredient in there is so necessary it's so sort of important. But there's something about Robert Llewellyn that no one comes out of those films going, oh, he's an arms dealer. You know, he's making all these weapons of mass destruction and sort of <laughs> yeah. that guy's got blood on his hands. It's just like, yeah. oh, <laughs> lovely, love, lovely cue. Yeah. Yeah.
1: The new cue is all right. But yeah. I don't, I don't feel like. Yeah, I don't think Llewellyn Davis would take. A USB key from a super yeah. villain and plug it into the mainframe of MI6. Though I feel like someone <laughs> sort of been watching The Dark Knight or The Avengers. Yeah, we need Silver, um, uh, Javier Bardem's character, to escape. Yeah, and we need this to happen. There was definitely a sense of that. That was definitely
3: Yeah, a sense. definitely, definitely. In the in the new novel, um, by oh, what's her name, Kim Sherwood? Q um, is she a supercomputer, quantum. Um mm. computer, and there's a bunch of people, young people sort of around him, or it sort of working it but I, I wonder if that's something they may sort of go for in the next iteration
1: oh, and you just have and it's almost like Iron Man where he cues constantly in his ear, and... oh yeah, you can see yeah, you can see yeah. all that sort of stuff, oh my gosh, yeah, but well, you know it, what that actually brings me quite nicely to my next question um Bond and the Beatles have both have to alter and update themselves over the years but it is clear that bond's had to do the most updating yeah why do you think this is is it just because one's film and one's music well bond the thing about bond
3: is it has this weird way of sort of almost seductively just whispering to yourself going, wouldn't wouldn't you like your life to be like this? You know, it's like, wouldn't you like to be like no one no one fantasizes about being Jason Bourne or anything like that? But the thing oh, that would about be horrible, is, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the thing is, oh no, you want to be like Bond, and it's not um it's not uh, a character, it's not how men should be, and it's not how men need to be, but it's what sort of men sort of fantasize about being or dream so in many ways it's ideologically unsound and being exposed to the light in that way and explored in that way um you can you know the the, the faults of it are, are very very evident but by doing that i do think it is healthy and i do think the question of how men think they would like to be or what men should be um If you look at the last 60 years of Bond, you can see that changing very, very significantly. And it is moving in a way that is ultimately positive, I think, if you go from the very beginning up to the Daniel Craig sort of films. It is a a positive shift. And it's always behind the curve and it's never, you know, it's never, no one's ever. No, sort of, Bond
1: is always politically correct. Five years ago, <laughs>
3: yeah, you know, yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, but that is the area where real change happens. You know, that's when things sort of reach the level that even Bond is changed by them. You know, so it's it's a good yeah. sort of indicator of how we're changing. And so for Bond to keep going, it has to keep doing that. So which is why I think they're having so much difficulty coming up with the next one because you know they finished the last film in. 2019 that's four years ago we would have had oh you know, don't say
4: that oh yeah, my...
3: yeah. oh i'm so old <laughs> they haven't even announced you know who they're going to be and they seem to be really struggling because they've got this issue where
1: yeah do you, you go know, for harry styles or arnold schwarzenegger those are your options right now aren't they
3: basically basically yeah. and it's a divide their audience has been getting older and the younger audience has, has not been going to see Daniel Craig films, and you know you go to Comic Con and no one's cosplaying as Bond. It's 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 they sort of lost that sort of younger audience, but they are going to need to try and get it back if it is to continue in the in the long term. So it's the next Bond is going to be that man in his early thirties. Um, it's going to be millennial. It's going to be the first millennial Bond now. That's very, very different to the visions of masculinity. These are people who've grown up with you know tinder or have got or something like that, and the the, the way that bond was bond sluttiness was supposedly classy in, in yes. Fleming's eyes. oh that's so far, gone, man, it's a, so for a nip, it's so vanilla yeah the, yeah
1: there was there was no such thing as a man ho in nineteen seventy three for example yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean are we? Because I I I'm never going to use the W O K E word around bond or because I think it's a it's a it's a ridiculous term that yeah. is just a distillation of a uh, hundred thousand feelings that. Well,
3: if are, if are people concerned. had a rule that you could use that word if you defined what you meant by that word, yeah. we'd be fine. But it's just everyone using using it in different ways and meaning yeah. different things. It becomes meaningless
1: because, um, I mean, I think one of the best things the Bond franchise has done in recent years was to add a, a competent woman writer to yeah. the scripts. And the only bad thing I'll say about No Time to Die script is you can tell which scenes Phoebe Waller-Bridge wrote. You can tell <laughs> yes. which scenes were from the 2017 script and the 2018 yeah. script, And yeah. that's not a particularly bad thing. They just needed a, a more of a, they should have just smoothed, it over a little bit so it was uh-huh. less of a like that uh-huh, uh-huh. But i feel like it was it was a very good move for the group uh, for for the franchise but that's because they've got to continually put out new product bond mm. can't survive as a franchise just having doctor no up to you know you only live twice or something the beatles have those albums yeah and that's it there's There's nothing more. Absolutely. So the difference would be if you don't like Run for Your Life, which is about killing a woman because you know (sighs) you don't like her romantic interests. Yeah. You simply have to just not like that song, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. With with Bond, it's easier to update and rejuvenate him rather than say rejuvenate a beat or something, because you can't do that. I guess you don't. uh,
3: diametrically opposed. Ahead it. of the last film, that word you don't want to say. Yeah. Um, it wasn't enough for the Daily Mail, right? They had oh, to invent oh the, no, th- the word. F-
1: heaven forbid that yeah. there is a woman of color with the rank of 007. <laughs> Firstly, who cares? Like this is all like you're a writer, I'm a podcaster, but ultimately yes. at the end of the day, yeah. who cares? They coined the
3: word super woke. So described did they. the last Bond film, yeah, really? yeah, they did, and it's a Bond film we're talking about. It's bad, isn't it?
1: In in um, in rebuttal to that, though, I felt like they didn't take the racial element of the bad guy far enough. Okay. I wanted I wanted the bad guy which, to be which a bad f- guy. Though? You know, the doctor who was working for Safin and was like, oh, this can target any group or any race on the planet. Oh, and yeah, that, yeah. And the implication was, like, oh, is this bad guy just trying to kill all Filipino people or something like that? Sure, Fortunately, yeah. my audience in, in the Philippines is very small, so I'm not going to be offending anyone. But, <laughs> you know, I kind of felt like in if we're going to make Bond maybe a bit more acceptable in today's society, maybe make the villains even more unacceptable. Yeah, Not yeah, just absolutely. I want money, power, and real estate. Like, fuck off, Lex Luthor. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean. Like, the the, the real, en- like, you know, the real enemies Bond should be fighting are, you know, racial purists and people like that. You know, like, let's give Bond. Yeah. A 20. I don't want to say this. I'm going to be James Bond. Here's a bad spy. It's our thing news. You know, well, let's that, have that be the villain. You know. Well,
3: Danny Boyle was supposed to be doing that last film. No, uh, he, dude, he sort, dude, it was sort that, of booted that, that, off for political. It was never gonna reasons.
1: happen. It was never gonna happen. It's like Marvel and having Edgar yeah. Wright do Ant-Man it was never gonna happen. Because Danny Ball's got something to say, and you can't yeah. say anything in Bond. Yeah. Well, he was it was it was a lot more
3: about uh, Russia, Russia meddling in other countries and oh specifically more, Russia. Specifically <laughs> these these are the problems of the modern world. Um so they did that. It's they just wiped all that away because for wow. them, this is weird little fantasy world that Bond well, has, which is sort of important. Die Another Day
1: away. is the final time that country's the villain, isn't it?
3: Uh, die Another Day. Uh, yeah, it was, it's, it was it's North Korea. Korea. Yeah, it was North Korea.
1: It's 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 almost like how like gypsies or redheads are the only things you can take the nick out of in this country anymore. Well, you, know, well, you know, you know, like back, I, I, back, I'm not. Back, I'm not sure you can do that. To be honest, it, it, I'm, I'm I'm being I'm being flippant, but you know, <laughs> back when uh, No of the Day came out, it was like, oh well, North Korea is the only like bad country we can pick. That's not uh-huh. that's not Islamic, for example, because Bond's never yeah. gonna touch that. Bond is never going anywhere near the Middle East. Yeah. Uh, because that's very pointed and that wouldn't yeah. work. But then again, in like, you know, I mean, oh
3: is die, the, die another day is 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 fascinating because
1: it is. It's it's, going it's a transitionary
3: towards, it's it's heading towards Marvel territory. It's got this uh, you know within, the villain.
1: on the on the on the the, the wave and the laser and yeah and but the the villain's got this this sort
3: of robotic exosuits which allows him to control a space laser that can destroy any part of, of the world uh this is pure marvel sort of thing and they they just sort of made such a handbrake turn at that point and went no we cannot cannot go down the invisible cars ice hotels and uh, uh that sort of pure sort of fantasy
1: Dude, um, your bit in this book where you talk about why the Jinx movie didn't work was very funny. Oh, was <laughs> it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, I mean, if you can't make a movie about Halle Berry in a skin-tight leather catsuit work... Yeah. I don't know how bad of a premise your film is. <laughs> <laughs> because Catwoman got made, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, she's uh, done She's done Monsters Ball. She'll do any crap now, you know. <laughs> <laughs> she deserves a payday. Yeah, yeah, 100%. 100%. Um, of course, there is a, a fantastic quote in the book that I really resonated with, and it was when you wrote, the four Beatles then appear like modern people, marooned in this distant past, waiting for a society to catch up with them. Oh, Jeez, yes, man. yeah, it didn't Get Back, you mean.
3: I was, yes. I was talking about get back, wasn't I? Yeah, and that uh, you spend you know hours and hours hanging out with them, and they, you you understand how they relate to each other, and it seems very uh, normal. And then the cameras on the last episode go outside, and hello, so like, head blah, scarfs, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like, my god, this is the ancient past. What are what are those people doing in the ancient past? It's. Do you think that society has caught up with them yet? Yeah, I think we've been very much shaped by them, and I think that is a is a the the, the way they um, uh, resonate with us in in Get Back, and the way we sort of understand uh, how they're thinking and how they're behaving with each other, and um, how how emotionally sort of uh, informed they are. I think I do think we have moved in that direction, definitely. I think there's not many people like them at the time. It's that it's that You know, there's only six and a half years between cover on Please, Please, Me and uh, Abbey Road. Um, But the, you know, the four strange hairy men on Abbey Road Mm -hmm. look nothing like the the bright-faced young boys on Please, Please, Me. And it's not that there weren't anyone like that at the time. It's that the people like how the Beatles were at the end of the 60s were just unthinkable back in 1962. The, The people who had those you know, views on, you know, um, on on religion, on drugs, on sexuality, on all all these sort of, all the things that they define and all the things that we think about when we think of of, of, of their work just simply didn't exist at that point.
1: Uh, I mean, reading your book, it reminded me a lot of, like when I was younger, I had, I've got my mother who was, an incredible matriarch, very strong woman, my my and my mother's side, same again. Yeah. My dad and my grandma were terrified of my nan on the other side of the family, <laughs> and and my sister to me is a kind of Sauron Morgoth figure that I'm eternally afraid of because she's a woman in herself. Wow. she's the light of my life but also the darkness in my soul as well. Um, (laughs) Okay. And so Did she listen to your podcast at all? Oh yeah. Yeah she's never heard of (laughs) single episode. Um, (laughs) But so when I grew up I was like hang on people don't like women. People think women are weak or lesser and I genuinely had to like reconcile with that and come to terms with that, and I feel like read I, I get a lot of that in this book. It's like uh-huh. if I felt that in the mid two thousands, how were people in nineteen sixty four trying to reconcile with these four young lads and their, yeah. and, their and and their kooky ideas? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you're just talking about England here. You know, you don't even touch on how they wouldn't play to segregated crowds in America yeah yeah no, I think that's in there but um well no I mean it's not it's not the focus yeah oh yeah yeah yeah. yeah, 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 yeah,
3: no, it is it is um it is fascinating about how much it seems to be um England trying to decide who it was now that it's no longer empire, looking for a modern sense of uh uh country Britain rather than particularly England, but the fact that that sort of became such a global phenomenon. In fact: the whole world got got in on it. Is kind of odd. It does say there is something more going on there than uh, just England having a bit of a nervous breakdown.
1: Well, it's it's arguably the biggest simultaneously the biggest revolution in British pop um, in British pop culture and culture, and biggest export of British culture and pop culture since, like, I don't know, ever. L- yeah, like the East India Trading Company in colonialism. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. Imagine a band of four guys playing pop tunes has the cultural significance of conquering s- dozens of countries worldwide. You know what I mean? Like, it's, I mean, it's insane that that sentence that I've just said isn't that ridiculous. It
3: is insane when you read... Um, Leslie Woodhead's written a really good book about the Beatles in Russia, the Beatles conquered the Kremlin,
4: uh,
3: and it's full of, you know people just going out of all the Western things, the the Beatles was one of the strongest uh was one of the greatest things that caused about the the, the end of the Soviet Union in the fact that because the Soviet system had said the Beatles are bad and, and yeah. tried to ban them and things like that and people heard them and they were like, well that's clearly not bad. That clear that's great. That's clear that's utterly sort of human and That's the sort of point they sort of stopped believing in the Soviet system. So when, for lots of economic reasons, it did all collapse and fall apart, nobody fought for it because nobody really believed it. And all these, you know, Russian commentators going, yeah, that's because of the Beatles was quite a shock to me. Because it, it seems absurd that they're could. And
1: have there's no irony there. But... There's no irony
3: there either. Yeah, no, not at all. And it's it's funny for me because it's Bond was that great, you know, to destroy the Soviet Union. And fight the Soviet Union. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you know, but no, it's just some yeah, yeah, yeahs was there.
0: No, I mean,
1: oh. I've got like eight questions that I could pick, and I don't know which one to follow from there. <laughs> there's so much to cover oh, there. Oh yeah, um, sorry. Oh, my gosh. Now, um, you know what? Something that we brought up earlier that I wanted to come back to, uh, you mentioned this in passing. Bond and the Beatles have a reliance on what critics who praised the film uh, The King's Speech dubbed the Grey Pound. The Grey Pound. Oh, Oh, yes, okay. So that means people over the age of kind of 50 and onwards.
3: yeah. Are I
1: those people who can afford them bloody hundred and eighty quid box sets? <laughs> or if you've got a Patreon where people buy it for yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, yeah look, I'm confident that the Beatles are going to be here in a hundred years. I am too. Do you, do you think Bond's going to be here in a hundred years? It's a fascinating
3: question. It's a really interesting question. Um, on one hand, it's it's quite interesting when they were recasting Sean Connery. One of the quotes from Cubby, Broccoli, from Cubby Broccoli was that Bond is one of those characters that will be played by lots of actors that will look, always go on, uh, like Tarzan or Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. And now, for Sherlock Holmes, sure, that makes sense. But Tarzan, that's not <gasps> happening anymore. Oh, you know, no, it's know, At the heart of Tarzan is the notion uh, a white aristocratic baby. If you put that in the jungle, it will become king of the jungle because it's because <laughs> it's superior, right?
1: Yeah, that's at the heart oh. of it. There's no
3: way Tarzan can sort of be resurrected. Nobody. They go
1: tried the, about yeah. with with Christoph Waltz no less as the villain.
3: They did, and they they, they tried their best, but you know it's. Ain't no Tarzan films out at the moment. Put it that way. Um, so it's, it's it's tempting to say, oh, Bond might
1: be like that because well, Sherlock's didn't. moved to TV
3: now as well. Ah, oh, Sherlock's everywhere. Well, that's that's no, good. But
1: could Bond come to television in twenty years in the age well, of streaming? You know,
3: it's what well, I was going. Yeah, I was going to say that it's tempting to say that Bond might not make it in the twenty first century because the generation raised in the twenty first century is pretty much everything they're against. You know, but people <laughs> have been saying oh bond's over it's old hat they should stop doing these things it's just embarrassing from about 1967 and it just keeps going and it just keeps going and they were saying that for the 70s and throughout the 80s and the 90s there's always a reviewer just saying this is so there's something there's something uh it's maybe it's because it's become a tradition tradition is a sort of powerful sort of magic but there is i suspect it's going to be it's not going to well, I suspect it's going to continue. It would be interesting on TV because of the way the media landscape shifted. Mm. I'm very surprised that they didn't do a series with the, uh, the the current Bond scooby gang after, at the end of No Time to Die when Daniel Craig was out. Oh, okay. But there was still, there was the M and the Q and the Tanner and the uh, shadow and Lynch's 007. And it, the whole thing, you know, and uh, Muddy Penny. Really great money, Penny. Oh, you've got
1: uh, Anna, Anna D'Armas's character. They were talking about her in a Oh, moment.
3: yeah, 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 absolutely. They might not be able to afford to get her now, these days, but it yeah. uh, they, seems they, set up for a sort of a, you know, a, a good Amazon Prime sort of a spy caper, like they've done the Jack yeah. Ryan or the. I was the, just going to say Jack Ryan's thing. the big one.
4: Yeah, They'd
3: easily have done that and then come back with the, the new bond with an entirely new uh, team. Maybe well, even get. Timothy Dalton in as as M and never explain if he's playing the same character as he was before because I'd really drive people mad.
1: Obviously, you know that Sean Connery was meant to be Kincaid.
3: Yes, yes. Well, yes, I think they very quickly realised it was probably a bad idea.
1: Yeah, it's Um, it's stupid.
3: But, yeah, I'd love to see Timothy Dalton back as M. That would work.
1: Now, this isn't my idea. This is an idea that I've heard various critics and, uh, um oh there's actually a guy on youtube that i'm going to hook you up to if you haven't already heard of him already um dyson uh, dyson's his name he's got a massive bond channel he would fucking love this book (laughs) um but i think i think i heard it from him first the idea that the next bond we go back to the 60s you hear it a lot it's um it's a
3: common one i think was Quentin Tarantino was his plan. Quentin has it.
1: definitely said it as well. Yeah, that, yeah.
3: That'd be what he'd do. Maybe like he'd be yeah, got to it, know it was. It would work for one. It uh-huh. might work for a couple. A trilogy, maybe. But it's, it's not. It's ones. not. You know, it does have to keep changing and being relevant to the modern world and reflect what the modern theory is and all these sort of things to keep going on to sort of keep going on. But yeah, it's a little sort of breather between you know. 15 years of Daniel Craig and 15 years of the next guy.
1: Well, Um, I mean, the big example for me is the gap between Timothy Dalton and Brosnan was perfect. It literally felt like they were going from film to digital, from analogue to internet in one fell swoop. And maybe if if you do 10 years of 60s Bond, then after that we can see what Bond in the era of... Uh, China being the major world power and AI and all of that stuff, yeah. and he can recontextualise himself again. Either I, that or 10-year uh, break, fucking massive 10-year break. Kobe Buckley else? can just hold on to his coffers for a bit.
3: There's certainly a lot of people who would love to see the books made um, as the books.
1: What, where so Felix actually, Leiter gets eaten by sharks?
3: No. Yeah, he gets eaten by sharks, <laughs> and his has his hook. He's got his hook. Uh, as a TV series, you know, a really sort of faithful series, adaptation, yeah. period adaptation as a TV series. Um I, I can see that I can definitely see the logic of that. We then, shouldn't be waiting, we shouldn't be waiting 10 years between bonds, so it's just insane. It's, it's mad that we've been waiting this long to even hear what's gonna happen with the next one.
1: I mean, there's nothing that would make a Bond series particularly expensive, is there? It's not like game of Thrones. I mean, it would be period. But I mean yeah. it, it's not like it wouldn't be on location particularly much. It's yeah. mostly suits and cars and coffee tables, things that are still relatively abundant in every in everyday life.
3: Yeah, it would be on location a lot, but but what
1: but what isn't these days, you know? No, you wouldn't. You just do it in that big Disney screen thing where <laughs> <laughs> the yep. big hollow thing that the Mandalorian <laughs> used. Um
3: and just you know, in, in Doctor No, for example, uh in the book, he kills the villain by drowning him in bird shit, and then he, yeah. and just before that, he has a big fight with a squid, right? So to do it as the books, man, that would be fun.
1: Now, uh, every single one of the books has at least one moment where you go, "Ah, oh, we know why they didn't do that, but yeah. imitations. <laughs> yeah. Oh, is that what you say? Oh, yeah, yeah. Or, or, um, but, but there's there's no scene in a Bond book that would require more than. 10 extras on set at any one time, really, is there? Yeah,
3: often the bond books are much smaller. I mean, Moonraker, he just knocks around Kent for a bit. He never he, he never leaves Kent. Oh you know? yeah. <laughs> no, none of this going into space or you know, <laughs> sort of South American jungle or any, anything like that.
1: Oh, that's funny. I'm just picturing <laughs> like I'm just picturing the trailer in a world, <laughs> one man. Wanders round Kent for a bit. One man
3: he drives the A two.
1: <laughs> one man stops at a lay-by for a griggs. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, right, dude. One last question. One last serious one, and then we'll start wrapping things up, chucking in the plugs here and there. Righto. Connery and the Beatles were both working class in the sixties. At the time, of one of the largest working class cultural revolutions in history. Where do you think society or we would be socially without these two beacons of make something of yourselfness?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, that's a, such a significant part of the book. I don't even know where to sort of begin on that and how it all sort of fell apart, especially after after the 90s and had that sort of brief period where um, in in acting, uh, in music, in theatre, working class voices sort of finally were allowed in. It was, it was a really brief period, and a lot had to do with how the culture got uh, the country got mixed up during the war, and you you know you got um, people who would never be heard of sort of emerged after the war. So like the Goons and the Spike Milligan and people like that, and uh, it was it was so. Um, It was so threatening to the establishment. (laughs) I talk talk about how Hanif Qureshi, um, when he was at school, he was taught that the Beatles were a hoax because there was no way that, you know, four oiks, basically, who weren't from the right families and who didn't go to the right schools, there's no way that they could create music that was self-evidently better than anything that the people from the right schools were, were coming up with. Um, the thought of it was just so threatening to Hanif Cressy's music teacher that he had to retreat into this conspiracy theory where it was George, George Martin and Brian Epstein who were writing the songs and they were just all, you know, hard to sort of, sort of please the women. And you see that reaction when uh, Harold Wilson put them put the Beatles up for MBEs and the appalled letters that flooded into the Times and the Telegraph and the people sending back their honors and thinking the entire honors system had been devalued by being associated with you know working class Liverpudlians. Um, it was such a it was such a jolt and such a such a change. Uh, and slowly it's gone away again. It's all sort of fallen away again. And the the sense that, you know, if there's a a musician and you, you know, you hear nowadays, if you go to their Wikipedia page, you know, their mum, their dad, their their school will all be hyperlinked. You know, it's, it's that sort of where we're sort of coming from. And it's such a shame. It's a real shame. Because what was so vital about voices like the Beatles were because they were from outside the establishment. They wanted to change things. They wanted things to be better. People who were from the status quo, quite happy with the status quo, they don't want to change it at all. So it's it's much more anodyne, you know. It's much more sort of uh, blander, and more ineffectual and, and uh, much more meaningless sort of culture that sort of comes from a lot of people. But the fact is, you know, if you're starting out in music, in acting, in, in, in writing. You're going to need to live in London for a few years before you you make anything, and that costs so much, so you can only do that if you have the family backing. and. and oh, dude,
1: I am bitter to this day that I never got my paid-for internship at the BBC, you know. <laughs> these things don't happen. But, I mean, isn't a lot of this... You know what? I'm I'm going to become Citizen Smith here. I'm going to raise my hand to the sky. Mm-hmm. Isn't this just down to the fact that it's the post '50s boom, the post '80s economic boom, and so you know the Beatles and say Brick Pop. They they they're spawned from these eras of an economic slump, and then things start looking better. Nine 9-11, 11s you know a glint in our eye in the future, so everything's great in the '90s, and so there's mm-hmm. loads of music, loads of culture, loads of film. And now suddenly, post-War on Terror, post-economic collapse, oh, all of the biggest actors are now Benedict Cumberbatch, Eton, Tom Hiddleston, Oxford... It, I mean, even even all of the singers now. I mean, half the people you yeah. see in pop bands and stuff. Oh well, their dad's a, was a producer in the eighties, or their mother is, you know, a, a, a very important executive at getting yeah. records or something.
3: I mean, it's it's uh, it's it's interesting that um, the younger generation have picked up on this in a way that our generation babies. did. Know yeah. stuff about Nepo babies and things like that. It's yeah, uh... five year old. Oh, hello. Sorry, Sorry. That, that was a...
1: Carry on, Nepo babies.
3: <laughs> yes, a, a strange alien voice. Bit um, they're clued into it. They understand it, and they're aware of it, which is I find promising. But um, yeah, it's it's a it's a terrible state of affairs. Um, it's I, I cannot solve for you now in five minutes. Sorry, Sam.
1: No, but do you not think that mate, let, let's look at this in a more positive light? Surely that means that we're on the cusp of another great you know surge of pop culture and music and movies and stuff you know we've, we've that did, would be bloody lovely be lovely wouldn't it if there was a mm. new if there was a new oasis that everyone loved <laughs> and then everyone would say it is as good as the beatles and then people like me would say well, no they're not quite as good as the beatles or, yeah. you know blah blah blah, blah. Um, yeah
3: <laughs> it's uh, i mean the i mean the culture in generation z is fascinating but we're utterly excluded from it it's, it's incomprehensible to us. It's, it's got so many layers upon layers and references upon references that unless you're immersed in that particular world, you cannot follow it. You cannot understand uh, what is going on. Um, but I think it's rich, and I think it's really fascinating what's, what's happening there. Um, but for you know, old farts like myself... I do. You could turn on TikTok and just go, it's just people shouting. I don't like it. <laughs> it's not It's not very good. I think we're sort of we're, we're, we're missing. There's a lot of, um. there's a surprising depth of thought, I find, in Generation Z culture. I'm quite clued up on a lot of things. So it's no surprise that they pick up on things like the Nepo babies in a way that the millennials
1: didn't and things like that. Yeah, I feel like millennialism was almost a nihilistic acceptance of the status quo. Okay, and, uh-huh. and I think Gen Z's a bit more. Nah, the rebels blew up the Death Star, man. Like, yeah, like, <laughs> like definitely. Let's 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 go for it. But um, you know, one thing that I, I I just did I just did did want to say was you know the the book covers so much. Folks, this is the book right right here. Um, the book covers so much, and yet there's a wonderful balance you strike in it in between hard-hitting facts and the narrative that you're setting out. And you've, you've got these wonderfully brief chapters. I felt like my reading picked up. I felt like I was always uh desiring to find out what happened next what year you were going to pick was it going to be a beatles chapter was it going to uh-huh. be a Bond? Uh-huh. was it going to be e- e- either or i generally found myself excited and wanting to progress in the book outside of just having content to talk to you about on this plug interview you know i i, I, I really was actually enjoying going through it It's something that I'm actually going to finish in my own time. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to say I'm going to (laughs) finish it in the next two weeks. I'm not saying that. But, you know, next holiday I have, it's going right in the suitcase. Mm -hmm. I'm going to have a little margarita going, oh, my God, in context, McCartney's promotion of ordinariness. You know? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Sam,
3: that's a lovely thing. That's a lovely thing.
1: uh, Folks. I mean, I'll, I'll I'll give my full glowing review in the, uh, in the in the pre-recorded segment that comes at the top of this because I don't want to embarrass you too much. But this is a wonderful example of what modern Beatles new media looks like. It's not just here's all the facts that you already know. You know, here's, here's all the hmm. things that these five other previous biographers said in slightly different syntax. This is the modern <laughs> synthesis of Beatles media. This is Beatles and Beatles plus, Beatles with. Does it recontextualize my entire way of viewing the band? I don't think many books do that. But does it offer me something new that I haven't read before in a Beatles text, So that's enjoyable and actually quite funny in places? Yes, it is. And for that reason... I love your fucking book, mate. It's really bloody good, Sam. You should do this for a living. (laughs) Thank you, man. That's very kind. Although, reading this book, I I imagine that whoever wrote this knows nothing about William Blake. That's all I'll say. Mm. That's all I'm going to (laughs) say. Look, John, thank you so much for coming on to Paul Or nothing. we're already about 25 minutes to half an hour over from what I intended to keep you... Yeah, Hey. You know, you are clearly as a digressional man as myself. So we're both going to rein it in now. We're both going to be professional. Do you have any plugs, or is this our goodbyes, my friend?
3: This is our goodbyes now. Enough plugs. No one needs more plugs. <laughs> uh, but it's been great talking to Sam. Really, really enjoyed it.
1: Yeah, thank you very much, Dave. This has been another episode of Paul. And I think to get all of your Paul all of the time. Forget live and let die. This was love and let die. Peace and love, peace and love. normal more, autographs. Follow us out, brother.